Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, read A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 140, Cattle and Five in a Storm of Swords, featuring Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, everyone, we are joined here today by another, another one of your hosts. Welcome back. Hello, Lady Gwyn. Thanks for coming on again with us. Hi, I am delighted to be here. and Thank you for having me. Yes, it feels right. It feels right to have you on for a Catalan just because you kind of are like the mother Catalan to us all here, you know, not maybe not like when you die, but we don't want that. I hope not. (laughs) We'd bring you back, but Mm -hmm. we are excited to have you here semi in the flesh, maybe not in the after flesh for a Catalan chapter last time. You did the world's best Liza. Uh, I don't think that there's ever going to be a more canonical Liza in the fandom of podcasters just because you read so the fevered, the desperation. Oh, my heart tore out of itself. I ugly sobbed. It was beautiful during Sansa 7 in A Storm of Swords. But here you are at Cat 5. There's some ugly sobbing ahead. So tell us something good, like what's new with you and Radio Westeros. Well, we are at Radio Westeros just concluding our Winds of Winter Primer series in which we have taken every point of view character and organized them by location and recapped what's going on with everyone as of the end of A Dance with Dragons and made some predictions about where they're going in the Winds of Winter. Just a little uh, service to the fandom so that you can all get ready. Refresh yourselves for the inevitable day. Is it inevitable? <laughs> I hear it's going to be next week. I hope so. I hear it's yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Look Have it under on good authority. your chair. <laughs> uh, it is coming. So, so yeah, we just released our, our Danny episode, which is the finale. Mm. We'll be moving on to some new stuff very soon, actually. Oh. We're going to be doing a Kevin Lannister episode next. So oh. Stay tuned oh. for that. That's a lot of fun. Well, yeah. I mean, Kevin isn't. <laughs> Not for him. But. <laughs> <laughs> He's not having a really great life. But <laughs> uh, Kevin Lannister in the no good, very bad day. He is having yeah. a bad He's day. not having much of a <sighs> so, life at all, okay. you know? Uh, no, where he left off at the end of A Dance with Dragons is pretty much... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't get life. a second chance to come back. <laughs> He's dead. Yeah. He left his life. The predictions for the Winds of Winter for him will be pretty simple. So uh, They could... They could make him, he could come back as a zombie, you know, like Kyburn could do something and be like, this is Sir Robert Weak instead of Sir Robert Strong. <laughs> and I made another one. This is Bob Weak. You made another one. Bob Weak, Kevin. I think that would just imply that Kyburn's skills are not as good. You know, like they've regressed. Absolutely. Without, you know, the five-year gap, his skills yeah. are just. Yeah. <laughs> uh I mean, Kyburn, they can't all be bangers as he oh trots God. them out. Yeah. I don't think we need, we don't need any more Kevin. Well, and to be fair, Catelyn does have nine lives, mm-hmm. right? So. Mm. Love it. <laughs> uh, I can make jokes too, Eliana. Congrats. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you back and we're going to get into all sorts of fun stuff throughout the episode. I know we have some tangents to go out on, especially some fuck Walder Frey tangents to get into, but first let's handle some housekeeping. Yes. So, 
Everyone, happy October. We are here. It is the scariest month of the year. And we have some aptly themed episodes coming on Patreon to go with that. So this month is going to be a His Dark Materials episode because it is this month. And last month was, of course, our Song of Ice and Fire episode and that focused on Rob Stark, the Rob episode what a POV from his perspective would look like. And this month is going to be more focused on, I think, the broader world of his dark materials. I am so excited for this episode because, like Aliana said, we're going to get spooky. We're going to be so spooky the entire episode. We're just going to talk about some of the great kind of, uh, you know, just the different creatures we come across. Some of the spooky lore of his dark materials and maybe where we've seen it in other mythos and Lots of stuff that, uh, just talking about, I don't know, its relation through other fiction and inspiration and also some of the stuff it reminds us of, like harpies and ghasts and zombies and all sorts of crazy stuff from His Dark Materials. So if you're not listening to our His Dark Material episodes, or if you are not reading it or have not read it, I highly recommend reading the His Dark Materials trilogy, uh, and we're covering it all over here at Girls Gone Canon. So you can find all that at our feed or at Patreon, where that episode will be available for the Stranger Tier and above patrons, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And we have other things available on our Patreon. For example, for patrons $10 and above, the Thunder Tier and above, we do have our Discord and as well as the everyday thing where you can go in the different channels and talk to people, we do have our Patreon Discord brunch slash happy hour once a month. Yeah, and this month is going to be, it's going to be an event. It's going to be spooky themed. It's going to be October 30th from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eliana time zone. Uh, I... I don't know if it's Eliana. It is Eliana time zone. Yes. Yes, yes it is Eliana time zone, <laughs> Eastern time zone. Uh, look, costumes for this Discord brunch slash happy hour event aren't mandatory necessarily. You know, they're, they're appreciated, not mandatory. But you should wear one. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to get drunk on Discord in a redacted costume. And we're going to play, like, the monster dating game on Jackbox and some other various silly spooky events are going to happen and shenanigans. Uh, that's where I'm at. I'm going to be having a costume party on Discord with all mm. my friends. I think people should. I think people should dress up. I will be personally hurt if they don't. I have an idea already of what I'm going to do for my costume, so I just need to get on that. Yeah, you have, like, 25... You have so days. many days. Yeah, I have, have a lot of days. 27 days. You'll figure it out by then. Yeah. Do you have a costume? Are you are you dressing up as anything this year, Lady Gwyn? Just in general. I don't know. I I'll see. The day will come and I'll just probably wear some weird clothes and weird makeup. That's what I usually do. <laughs> yeah. It usually works out okay for me. But um Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't always do, do things that. for Halloween. I don't. You know, we so most of the time we just stay in just cuz I do silly shenanigans year round so yeah well i guess not anymore yeah but (laughs) so i'm not specifically going anywhere but you know if i happen to be well you've been invited to a party well there might be yeah a party where i can stay home wear (laughs) wear a stupid costume (laughs) 
only from the waist up, matter. you know? Yeah. I've got you. Like brush I've the got back you. of my hair or do anything like with this part of my head. That's a great point. You're These right. are selling points. You are selling yes. pointing this People. right now. You, you could wear bright green, <laughs> bright green, and then have a green screen behind you, and then you could just like green screen a uh-huh. costume on. This is the future. <laughs> this is VR. This is the future. Yeah. Okay. So maybe this could maybe happen my to you. Will just be a bunch of beach balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Costume is yeah. I am somewhere else. Uh, okay. Well, uh, yeah. We got a couple emails and tweets of notes that we do want to bring up quickly this week. We did get a message from our friend, our patron, Dan, Dan slash Egg. My good friend. Yeah. Dan said, so Rob Stark POV must include parallel cave sex in the mountains of the crag, right? Brilliant. Very brilliant. Well done. Well, it was probably well done at the time. He's literally right, though. This is, it lines up timeline-wise. We didn't really think about this as deeply uh, as far as cave sex, but I think cave sex parallels are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is the same timeline, So, I, or like, yeah, very similar, or the reveals happen at a similar time. So it's, it is really interesting to watch their character arcs and how they both deal with those in different ways. They're fuck ups. Yeah, literal <laughs> fuck ups. They are fuck ups. <sighs> uh, yeah. Or downs, I guess. Or downs. Uh, we had a comment from Juka over on Podbean who reminded us a couple episodes back uh, that there is a Hoster in universe named for Hoster, and we've talked about this one before. Titus Blackwood's son is Hoster. His friends call him Hoss, but Jamie is not his friend. That's right. That is true, and yeah, this is, I think, in response to my rant of, I just don't like the name Hoster, and I would not want to be called Hoster, but I will say, I am fine with being named and called Hoss. I feel like Hoss has, like, a good, it's got a good ring to it. It feels like a solid name. Not Hoster, though. But who's gonna name their kid just Hoss? No one. Isn't there Hoss in, like, Gunsmoke or one of those shows from the 60s? Yeah. Hmm. Maybe that's why I I feel drawn to the name. I didn't watch that show. I don't know. It's got some kind of like Western. Yeah. yeah. The Big Brother. Yohas. Yeah. 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 Uh, that might be it. Maybe that's where George is taking. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, he really <laughs> might be. He really <laughs> might be. You never know. With that, that lets us get into our lightning round, which I'm sure you remember from last time, Lady Gwyn. It's been a while, right? It's been only three years since we've had you over to the House of Cannon. But in our lightning round, for you and those at home that need a refresh, we will cover the chapters real quickly in a lightning flash between Catalan 4 in A Storm of Swords and Catalan 5. And we'll start that off with Davos 4. Davos rises from the dungeons and is given a hand, a job, a hand job, a hand job. Jamie five. Jamie reveals his past to Brienne. Lord Bolton explains his new fray wife. <laughs> Tyrion five. Tyrion greets the Dornish retinue and later Oberyn Martell. Arya seven. The outlaws plan to sell Arya to her mother and brother. Gendry decides to stay with the outlaws. Whoa. Bran 3. 
Bran and the others take a refuge in a holdfast near the gift. Bran forces calm upon Hodor when a thunderstorm approaches. John 5. John is tested in front of his new friends and fails, deserting the free folk and fleeing. Daenerys 4. Daenerys frees Yunkai. Arya 8. The Brotherhood Without Banners meets with the Ghost of High Heart. Jamie 6. You want her? Go get her. So he did. <laughs> Ooh, woo. <sighs> Love it. Romance. Beautiful job, George. Beautiful job, Lady Thank Quinn. You. Thank you, George. <laughs> and that tears us into some tragedy, right? Catalan 5. The Northern King travels to the twins for the wedding event of the season. First, stopping at Old Stones to look on the River King's ruins. Rob chooses his Rob chooses his successor and makes plans for after the wedding. <laughs> so I do want to start off with a quick question. You know, Rob's choosing his successor. Lady Gwyn, you chose this <laughs> chapter. Why? Why were you so passionate about this chapter? I think you know. <laughs> no, I am passionate about this chapter because I'm very passionate about anything to do with this sort of Stark loyalist, Jon Snow, all the conspiracies. Mm. This is ripe ground for, I'll, I'll use the term GNC. I, I tend to think it, that's a little bit overused, but all of these kind of conspiracies, they're happening and a lot of it starts right here. That's true. It does start here. This is one of those groundwork, I think, chapters, even though it's like in the middle, I guess, of the mm. books that we get, but it really sets the tone for what the politics of Westeros could be like soon. <clears throat> Before we get there, Rob says goodbye to Jane in the Godswood, beneath the Porcullus, and beyond the Tumblestone, where she gallops up, pleading for him to take her with him. He is touched. But also not content with his crying wife's behavior. It's raining, gray, drizzling. And Rob must console his tearful young wife in front of his men. He's gentle, but there's anger underneath. Grey wind prowls around them, shaking water from his coat, baring his teeth at the rain. I have to say that Grey wind baring his teeth at the rain is absolutely the cutest thing in the universe. That's the yes. most important <laughs> thing to say. Their kisses are cute or whatever, but Grey Wind here, like, fighting the rain. Also, it's kind of sad now that I'm saying it more out loud because he's gonna... God damn it. Yeah. I saw I saw a dog... Someone was watering their garden with their hose, and I saw the dog, like, snapping at the stream of water trying to get it. So I imagine Grey Wind bearing his teeth at the rain having a, a similar energy. <laughs> but... As you said, I, I mean, in general, like this, I'm like, oh, man, that's so sweet of Jane to have come up three times, like, but also really poor Jane. And I'm happy that she chased after that last one and she got all of the goodbyes that she wanted in and squeezed those last few moments because turns out it's the last time she's going to see him ever. <sighs> that was, was so like, cruel. I was like, let's start with violence at the beginning of the episode. Jeez, Sorry, I'm Louise. shaking my head. Yes, no one can see that. Yeah. Oh, I can feel it. I think everyone at home can feel it too. You know, it's always more powerful when two people get to shake their head at her instead of just the one person, which is usually me. Mm, Yes, the balancing of the scales. (laughs) All right. Well, once Rob gives Jane the final kiss, ow, he mounts his horse and Grey Wind races ahead of him. 
Lame Lothar is there and says, Queen Jane has a loving heart to Catelyn. She's not unlike my sisters. Rosalind's likely dancing around the twins, chanting Lady Tully, Lady Julia Tully, Lady Julia Gulia. This is a wedding singer joke. <laughs> Lothar turns to Edmure, commenting, he's surprised at his silence, wondering how, how does Edmure feel right now? Much as I did at the stone mill just before the war horn sounded, Edmure said, only half in jest. Yeah, so Lothar says that he hopes that their marriage ends as happily as the stone mill. And Catelyn thinks, may the gods protect us if it doesn't. Oof. And I, I think it could. All right. I think that there's a possibility that their marriage could end like this, the stone mill battle, like heavy losses on both sides, lots of violence. Uh, but we, there is one side that we're cheering for um, coming out of all of it. And they kind of they kind of end up semi-okay mm. at the end, but very much still suffering. And it, it very much could be. Yeah, it, honestly, hysterically, ironically, horribly, it's the one thing that could fix the Riverlands after all the warring is done. Like, mm. A, all the frays are going to be dead except mm. for a handful, right? Mm. Scattered mm. around here. Uh, B, everyone else is dead. C, Edmure Tully and Rosalind Frey will be wed, so like that enmity will be kind of sown finally between mm -hmm. the two houses. So it's kind of like the worst, best outcome mm -hmm. they could ask for. Everyone else will be dead. And they'll have to like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Re reboot the Freys, reboot yeah. the Tullys, you know, off and oh, on uh, again. Yeah. <laughs> Big sad. Uh, Big sad. Mm. I'm depressed already. Well... Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I'm sorry that we have. I chose I mean, this. You chose this a long time ago. I asked <laughs> you, for this. You you made your bed. You've literally dug your book. grave. Yeah, yeah, you've dug your Jesus. Uh, well, Catelyn presses her heels into her horse. She's leaving Lothar and Edmure to each yeah. other. She's like, "Good, be together. I don't want to be with you two. She had actually been the one that suggested Jane stay home at River Run. Because she's like, Walder will find her absence an insult. However, her presence is going to be a different, worse insult. And Rob can take insults, but he can't take insults mm. at his wife. He is Ned's son. He would not sit there for that. And Kat thinks that he totally resents her for it, even though he agreed. It's obvious he misses Jane, and he blames her for her absence. Oh, he's got to blame someone, I guess. But really, Kat's wisdom saved Jane's life, and... We have to clutch that straw, don't we? Yeah, it did save her life. It, that's so apparent. Like, this is unfortunately one of those, oh, mom was right mm -hmm. moments. My mom was right. Guess yeah. he can't really think that, though, because yeah, you know, he dies. Yeah, he doesn't have the chance. <laughs> yeah, he probably did, you know, in those brief moments. This is probably his last right, thought. For mom like two right. seconds. Yeah, he's like, oh, shit, my mom was right. Wow. Um, other than Grey Wind, you yeah. know, <sighs> and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I also like that she says, well, you're Ned's son, so you wouldn't be able to stomach those sorts of insults. Kind of reminds me also of her thinking like, there's a little Brandon mm. in there too. I feel like Brandon also would be like, absolutely not. Yeah, this is not, not okay. at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, like at the tourney, truly, with Liana, he was the one who was angrier than most. Brandon was insulted. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the rest of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Insults to his family. No, no, no. <sighs> Only one Westerling actually ended up coming with Rob on this trip, Sir Raynal, Jane's brother and royal banner-bearer. Ralph Spicer was dispatched on a very important mission. 
deliver Martin Lannister to the tooth, freeing Robat Glover, and most importantly, putting Greywind back at Rob's side and away from mm. the Spicers. Oh, well, screw Rolf Spicer, honestly. I think they should have just let Greywind have his way and tear him to bits a long time ago. I mean, that's yeah. not really a, a really deep analysis, <laughs> but, but there it is. No. I mean, for sure, though, absolutely. Like, it's another one of those moments where, you, like mom you said, right. mom was right. She knew about the, the, you know, she knew about the tire wolves and she should have run with it. But, mm. well, and there is that bit, right? We talked about this a lot in our Rob Stark POV episode recently, but Rob's rejection of mm. his wolf. Like, he is rejecting his the self. wolf inside him. And there are two wolves inside you, and you cannot reject either <laughs> oh, of them no. if you're a Stark. <laughs> the fuck? It's true. I'm right. Yeah. And I should say it. Oh, my God. I like it. Um, we don't like Rolf Spicer. We also don't like Lady Westerling. Uh, she remains back at River Run with Jane, Elena, and Rollum. And while Rollum, Rob Squire, was sad to be left behind, it was probably for the best. So as to, again, not insult the phrase even more. And Catelyn prays that insults are all they will have to oh, deal with. George, <laughs> you're a fucker. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Uh, that's uh, the whole entire it. chapter. It's really hard to read without every other line just being like, yeah. God fucking damn it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I swear that my analysis will get better than just <laughs> swearing, but that's where oh, we're at. Oh, well, so don't far. worry because it's oh, going to no, get a lot fine. deeper. You're so fine. <laughs> right now, we're just, we're just warming up. We're just getting, getting sad. While Catalan totally fears their safety as they go to the twins she thinks queen jane is more than safe in river run with the blackfish the new warden of the southern marches to protect her catalan misses her uncle's craggy face and rob misses his counsel she's sure he had been instrumental to all of their victories thus mm. far i miss his craggy face too already really but on a meta level, is it, this is George saying that, uh, you know, Brandon Tully, the Blackfish, has an important job to do. He's been left behind on purpose. He's he's not going with them to whatever is going to happen uh, at the Twins. He's, he's there. He's been charged with protecting Queen Jane and the southern borders of Rob's kingdom. And I think we can all agree that... Blackfish is not one to take those sorts of responsibilities lightly. So there's going to be a lot more to come on, I think, both of those fronts. Yeah. I, I found that title this time through really stood out to me. And it made me think a lot of like the Marcher Lords down by Dorne mm -hmm. uh, between the Stormlands and Dorne, for example. And made me think a lot about borders. And interestingly, out of universe... There is a Lord Warden of the Marches that was originally between Scotland and England. It was an office in the governments there. They were responsible for security of the border between the two nations and often took part in a military action. They were also responsible for administering special border law known as March Law. These offices were made unnecessary after the union of the crowns of England and Scotland under King James in 1603. I've, uh, I've seen a few discussions that this title was insulting to Edmir from readers or like meant to undermine him. And I strongly disagree. Edmir, we know, is enjoying winning a few small battles and leading battles and being the lord of Riverrun. But this is a role that needs to be kept to maintain borders in their kingdom. 
Admir has more than proven himself a capable lord, but he needs to focus on ruling currently and its people for Rob, and Brynden has the capacity to rule the borders and the military for Admir and Rob. I do think this role was created as a major honor for Brynden, who just lost his brother and has given to the campaign his military and commander experience in full. If the Stark campaign were to survive, while it doesn't, but then it does, uh, it would need to be conscientious of these borders because we're seeing that the Lannisters are pretty much able to do whatever the fuck they want and burn through the towns. Uh, obviously, they're, they're not safe without this being watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I absolutely agree that it's an honor for Brynden, and also I, I agree that it's not a slight to Anur. I love this uh, fact about how there used to be a lord warden of the marches but um as you said right Edmure I do think he's a better lord than Brendan Tully is than Brendan mm-hmm. Tully is and Brendan Tully is clearly as you said a better commander he's a better military leader than Edmure is and I mean people gotta can't do everything themselves mm-hmm. yeah and obviously it's not one-to-one but there's even some of those tones of the maker versus Baylor right like one has to rule yeah one has to bash uh, you know, during wars. And we can't all bash. We can't all be just, you know, button mashing out in the field like Brynden. Some of us have to go use techniques and tactics. Those are the Edmures of the world. Those are the Mies of the world. No, I also button mash. Anyways, I do I do think that this is also really great world building for uh, the North, for the Kingdom of the North and the Riverlands. Because uh, we have some other special wardens in history, like the Warden of the Prince's Pass is House Fowler, the Warden of the mm. Stoneway is House Ironwood, Warden of the White Knife was Manderley, the Warden of the King's Mint, which has been defunct since Jaehaerys' reign, and the Warden of the Sands, defunct, it was only existing during the occupation in the First Dornish War. But having these titles, as silly as they kind of are in a way, it, it makes your kingdom sound more legitimate until you just start giving them out willy-nilly like my company i work for anyways (laughs) (sighs) but you have to have a few made-up titles Mm -hmm. in a in a startup company is what i'm saying and this one feels necessary Mm -hmm. you know it also will give morale and give a sense of responsibility and loyalty to the groups Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is he like the vice president is that I was going to say like a regional Regional vice vice president president. yeah yeah regional vp brendan be totally yeah. yeah god knows what they do <laughs> yes i don't i mean at least we kind of know what brendan does yeah but we also yeah. don't because the next book's not here but we have an idea of what he will probably do i think he's gonna protect queen jane and defend the southern yeah. border but <laughs> we'll i guess we'll see yeah well galbert glover came with all of them to take command of scouts and outriders in place of the Blackfish, and the Grey John leads the van. Then came the baggage train, their wains laden with food, fodder, supplies, gifts, and the weekend are wounded. Wendell Manderley and the men of White Harbor command this part of the army. Behind them is Robin Flint and the rearguard. It's 3,500 men, blooded at all of Rob's battles, trailing through the Riverlands. Besides some of, you know, Edmure's BFFs, who are the other lords of the Riverlands, they stay back to keep control while Rob plans to go north and win back his home. Yeah, I think he's very, he's got the same, it's obvious that he's going home because he's got his weak and wounded with him. 
You know, he, mm-hmm. they're they're on the move. They, you know, it doesn't seem like they're planning to come back anytime soon. And this is, you know, very close to the same group of mounted Northmen that he brought over to Whispering Wood uh, after he gained the crossing, um, minus the Karstarks, of course. Um, but mm-hmm. what's interesting about this, I, that I think, is that he actually suffered very few casualties throughout all of. Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Camps and then his campaign in the Westerlands. Aside from losing the Karstarks, his army is still very much intact and around the same size. This part of his army. Can't say the same about the one that he left with Roose Bolton, but more on that later. <laughs> uh, hollowed out. Mm. <laughs> that is a great point, and it's really interesting and speaks to, I think, as people have pointed out, right, Rob's skill as a tactician his his military prowess like in that specific way and i think it is kind of then much more unfortunate that if so few people died and during these battles then real real unfortunate that it was car stark's sons it is unfortunate and that he took that real personally i mean understandably so and we've discussed why but um you know last chapter we did notice too not just that but like Roos in the beginning was also the first part of his mm. faction to lose men. It's only ever been under Roos that he really lost men besides losing the Karstarks and the mm-hmm. Freys. Mm-hmm. And this also does add to that victory march home kind of feeling that's going on that we're getting the fake out for, right? Like, I don't even absorb any of the happy victory emotions in these chapters. Obviously, he doesn't let us absorb it because the rain drizzles that down and drowns us out, but... Uh, there are these like little tinges of we're going home we're gonna do it and now on the look back i'm like you sneak Mm. you goddamn sneak (laughs) there's no victory here there's just sadness every time it seems like there's gonna be something happy just don't buy it (laughs) (laughs) yeah well we get a hint of that with this quote ahead awaited Enyer's bride and Rob's next battle. And for me, two dead sons, an empty bed, and a castle full of ghosts. It was a cheerless prospect. Brienne, where are you? Bring my girls back to me, Brienne. Bring them back safe. So, when we talk about Lady Stoneheart, usually a lot is said about her frame of mind when she died. So I know we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, um, but um, vengeance is the thing first and foremost that people talk about as being the strongest emotion in her being at the time of her death. But here, I think it's interesting. We see hope, this desperate consuming hope that was such a big part of how Kat was feeling She's got, she's clinging to this really like a reed in a flood. Um, and, and I think that hope probably really only dies much later when she finds Brienne in the Riverlands bearing a Lannister sword accompanied by people sworn to the Lannisters. And I think later when we're faced with Catelyn stroke Lady Stoneheart's pitiless response to Brienne, we have to look back to this moment to understand how much she had been relying on the Maid of Tarth to salvage something of her family, in spite of the fact that Sansa had been married off to Tyrion and Arya had not seen in months. She's put all of her eggs in Brienne's basket, and that's going to be very painful when she perceives 
that basket is busted. All those eggs. Not quite egg-ons, but eggs. <laughs> oh um, my god. As you said. Gotta break Cracked. a few eggs. Should I make an egg net? <laughs> Wait. Um, <laughs> and I don't know where that came from. That was dumb. But yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting because you were talking about this. It, this is what you were saying just now, right? Like there's there's that really almost misleading hopeful tone to this chapter. It's a very much what's going on here because like despite all of the losses the northerners and rob they're looking for hope wherever they can and as you said catelyn is too you know she tried to make that hope happen that one time and along with seeing brienne maybe she's still like i i like the idea that lady stoneheart might have still held out hope i think that's interesting but then also i think there's the moment with ruth Bolton, right with the jamie lannister sends his regards and also yeah, but in general, right, it's devastating on a reread to see how hopeful everyone is in this chapter. They're like, we did it. We found a path to to make it home and get everything we want. And then to see how excited Rob is about Balin's death. He's like, finally, something's like going my way. And then knowing that he dies before he can take advantage of it and like execute all his plans is like pretty crushing but then again i'm like we should have known it wasn't gonna happen because why else would george have told us all of the plans in such detail that always means it's never gonna work it's mm-hmm. true though it also feels to me like a flag to like remember those plans because we might just see them by someone mm-hmm. else someone else might be smart enough to figure them out <laughs> talking about where the hope actually is in this chapter there is something happening right before this, right? The chapter right before this is Jamie going back for Brienne, which is kind of the very antithesis of like what Stoneheart thinks about Jamie. Jamie going back for Brienne shows maybe people could maybe change that trust, friendship, love, etc., all that shit inspires people to do things they didn't maybe think was previously physically possible for them to do. Mm-hmm. Jamie going back to Brienne feels exactly like not just that but maybe a sign that we should trust him and brienne like maybe maybe they could bring some of those girls home even if she's holding them at sword point in some gallows somewhere like maybe jamie and brienne will be able to explain it's all a big misunderstanding right yeah right (laughs) i mean it is Mm -hmm. it is a misunderstanding Uh, i actually believe that so yeah all a misunderstanding And I don't know, there's the crazy dream, right? That's also very significant. The faint light revealed only Brienne of Tarth, her hands bound in heavy chains. I swore to keep you safe, the wench said stubbornly. I swore an oath. And then, of course, the sword. A sword, Brienne begged, and there it was, scabbard, belt, and all. She buckled it around her thick waist. The light so dim, Jamie could scarcely see her, though they stood a scant few feet apart. In this light, she could almost be a beauty. In this light, she could almost be a knight. George knew what he was doing in connecting these two chapters together to kind of evoke what's to come for Catelyn and where Catelyn's arc is taking her, as well as these arcs that are being added around her. Yeah. I love how you've tied it to... Because I I really do think what you've touched on there is very fundamental to, I think, the heart of what George wants to explore in the series, the idea of, like, that love trust friendship i mean it it sounds like it sounds i think cliche a little but like that it can change someone for the better and inspire them to try and strive to be better than they are and withholding that as we see with jamie's brother Tyrion, 
can make drive people to do desperate, terrible things in search of it. And then again, when that's torn from people, when you tear away the love that they have, when you tear away uh, their sense of self and everything um, and rely on violence, that also changes a person immensely, as we see with Lady Stoneheart. And I do want to just put a little disclaimer out there that I don't actually like Jamie Lannister. Uh, you can't prove that I like Jamie Lannister. There is no actual proof of it. But if I did like Jamie Lannister, I may have analyzed it in the manner I just did. But I don't. <laughs> Moving past that. <laughs> the rain turns heavier each day. Everything turns to mud, stripping the trees off the leaves. Talking to your neighbor becomes more trouble than it's worth. So men only speak when they have something to say. One morning, Lady Mormont gives Catelyn words of encouragement. We are stronger than we seem, my lady. Cat's grown fond of her and Daisy, her eldest daughter. They both were understanding of her freeing the Kingslayer. Daisy is tall and lean compared to her short and stout mother, but they both wear leather, hauberk, and house mormont on their shield and surcoat. Catelyn thinks their clothing is odd, but thinks they seem more comfortable than she's ever seen Brienne in that kind of wear. Daisy cheerfully says Rob hasn't lost a battle yet, and she's fought beside him in each one. Catelyn thinks no, but he's lost everything else. She couldn't say it out loud. The Northmen's faith must be protected at all costs. I must be stronger, she told herself. I must be strong for Rob. If I despair, my grief will consume me. What does it mean? Does anyone know what it means? What does it mean? What does it all mean? What does any of it mean? <laughs> everything relies on the marriage they go to make if Edmure and Rosalind find happiness Rob will find Frey power once more but would that be enough caught between Lannisters and Greyjoys Rob can't dwell on anything but that he studies his maps whenever he can Edmure however is busy asking his court if anyone thought some of the Frey girls could be pretty Catelyn overhears and kind of scolds him a little and says you know, Cersei Lannister's pretty, and you'd be wiser to pray for a strong, healthy wife with a good head and heart. Surprisingly, Edmure didn't like her saying that to him very much. He avoids her the next day on the march, preferring his young river lords who don't scold him and less to jest. I think that's the great risk right here that, that Catelyn points out when she notes that Edmure's mostly just surrounded by people who only scold when jesting. The leaders surround themselves with yes-men who fail to counter their ideas or to counsel them, and it's the trap that Robert Baratheon and Joffrey end up in, and with the exception of his direct family, Edmure, you know, he's the incoming lord, and his friends, like, he probably dealt with very little criticism in his life, and... Though his desire for a pretty bride is understandable, contextualized within, like, Kat's own life and the plight of many of the highborn women, especially, like, what his sister Liza had to deal with when she didn't really get to choose her husband and had to just deal with whatever he looked like, even though that wasn't up to her standards or and didn't provide her a happy life either, like, Edmure is still, when he enters marriage, gets to hold a lot of the societal power within that dynamic so i think it makes sense that cat has very little sympathy for him in all of this and i i do think she's right to point out that cersei yeah she's pretty but 
is definitely not the sort of wife that he would have wanted. I definitely don't think that Edmure wants to be married to Cersei Lannister, uh, though perhaps Edmure, like Robert, would have ended up in a similar situation, surrounded by his wife's family, who are, you know, they're they're kind of their enemies. But interestingly enough, that that is actually his current state in the book, though, surrounded by his wife's family and enemies, because he is a prisoner. I think that's something that we talked about a little bit last chapter, but Edmure mm-hmm. is totally in that same Robert camp, just surrounded by his wife's family. Uh, and it's about to be, I mean, it's like taking the Lannisters and multiplying them and turning it up to 10 with what happens soon. Mm-hmm. God, yep. Lord. All well, the subtext is now text for their relationship. <laughs> uh, Catelyn regrets being this petty with Edmure just for a second. She's like, maybe wanting a pretty wife isn't so bad. And then she remembers her own experience. She had a childish disappointment in Ned. Right? She pictured him like Brandon, but younger, but that's not at all what he looked like. She thinks Ned was shorter and plainer of face, and so somber. He spoke courteously enough, but beneath the words, she sensed a coolness that was all at odds with Brandon, whose mirths had been as wild as his rages. Even when he took her maidenhood, their love had more of duty to it than of passion. We made Rob that night, though. We made a king together, and after the war... At Winterfell, I had love enough for any woman once I found the good, sweet heart beneath Ned's solemn face. There's no reason Edmure should not find the same with his Roslyn. <laughs> oh. I really love this this sort of exposition about Brandon and Ned and, and all mm-hmm. that, but it ends with Edmure and Roslyn. So I'm going to just if I could take this opportunity to point out what an absolute unqualified shit Walter Frey is. <laughs> I mean, like, this is a newsflash. So I'm sorry, but... <laughs> what? <laughs> in case I've anyone never, never thought of that before. You know, he struck a bargain with Kat for the crossing in exchange for the heir to a Lord Paramount that being Rob, marrying one of his daughters. What he ended up with was an actual Lord Paramount marrying one of his daughters. So technically speaking, he got better than what he bargained for. And, and he had been hoping for this match with Edmure for forever, but he'd pretty much given up on it because Lord Hoster couldn't stand him. Entirely justified, but... That's how that went down. So that seemed like it was never going to happen. But that he basically got what he had wanted for years and mm-hmm. better than expected in the end. Notwithstanding the fact that Rob rose to be a king in the middle. But I think what really happened is Walder Frey, famous for not committing to one side over another ever, just got nervous when Rob was declared king. So he saw Rob's position and his own as untenable before Jane ever entered the picture this huge insult was actually nothing more than a pretext to get on Walter's part, to get his ass out of an alliance that he had come to be extremely nervous about. It was Rob being becoming a king that doomed him, not Rob marrying Jane. That's my opinion of Walter Frey. And, you know, I think Roose Bolton understood this, capitalized on it. I think he probably felt the same way about the situation. You know, you pretty much saw Rob being declared king as them standing against kind of an impossible wave of Lannister attacks and all, you know, so 
these guys are capitalizing on on this. I don't think on this changes the ends or the means or any of it at all, but I like to call it like it is. Walder Frey was an unreliable, lily-livered craven and a douchebag long before Cat and Rob knocked on his door. And, you know, in hindsight, I think it was foolish for anyone to ever expect him and his family to be dependable or sincere supporters. Yeah. Down with House Frey. And that's what's so interesting because I love that you started it off with Edmir propaganda, <laughs> Lady Gwen. I love that you were like, I, Edmir Tully, <laughs> am giving him a gift. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I did laugh though. I was like, oh, Edmir Tully has entered the chat. Uh, but that said, Edmir was so quick in the last chapter, right, to be like, well, I'm perfect. Why wouldn't he want me? He wants me. This is what he's always wanted. And Catelyn is unfortunately the only one that sees the wider threat of it because once he adds you to his trophy collection it will be complete and then there's nothing else he wants mm-hmm. um, <sighs> that's what you all were <laughs> it's like you said he, he's been playing in the middle and not not rob walder Frey, <laughs> but uh both sides for a long time right and and that's the risk because as you see he's like made too many alliances he's got people married to Gemma lannister now Frey, but like mm. so it, it was never someone that could as you said truly be dependable or trustworthy looking to gain power anywhere and i wonder if it's also like did he think that he would just have much less power in this other kingdom or mm. he just as you said he saw he he freaked out i think when he signed up for this you know he saw it as just a way to kind of tweak time tywin lannister's nose a little bit i mean don't you know mm-hmm. ned was still alive ned was the hand yeah. when, when all this was happening and he probably saw it as you know this is just a little spat between lords and we'll go down there mm. you know we'll get ned freed up and smack tywin's butt and he'll go back to casterly rock and you know, Walder Frey will get to laugh at him. But all of a sudden, Ned's dead and Rob is like an alternate king. And Walder's like, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> I mean, uh, this yeah. is a little this is a little bit more real than anything he ever planned to commit himself to. So he's a shit. <laughs> he's pretty much a shit. And he only gets shittier mm-hmm. as we get towards the end. Yep. I thought this was going to go with... Uh... So their root takes them through the whispering wood. The wood has changed, the leaves are turning, and the rocks and roots are snarling at their feet. The only green trees left were soldier pines and spruces thrusting up at the belly of the clouds like tall spears. That That's the language. I wonder what mm. it means. <laughs> what could it mean, Eliana? <laughs> what does Is it mean? Is this foreshadowing? Looks at butterfly. Uh, <laughs> who knows but i mean in general like the language is just really great i think in that scene uh, and the focus on the imagery but also how cat is just sort of reminiscing it, it sets the stage i think for some of our other characters that we'll see especially in a feast for crows there's a lot of the the tone of this chapter is actually very reminiscent of some of those other riverlands chapters again in a feast for crows but here, Kat is revisiting these places that we've already seen in earlier books, and she's thinking about how much her son and the northern soldiers have changed, but also in the context of how much she herself has changed, right? How, how much both of her homes have changed, how her family has changed since those first battles when, when they went on this whole thing. And, and we, as the reader, we got to witness that transformation. We were there the whole time. 
But I think what's really great about getting to do that reflection on her arc is it also sets the stage for, I mean, especially Jamie's chapters, because Jamie actually, they do the exact same thing, where he, like Kat, revisits places in the Riverlands, where the reader had previously accompanied him, and watched while he also started changing and is reminiscing, um, and, and you get to really see how far a character has come, whether it's regressing or not. Yeah, that's There's not really regressing, mm-hmm. but yeah. No, but I mean, we're watching Catalin lose heart this yeah. entire time. Um, we're watching her heart literally just ice out in this drizzle. And interesting to compare it once more with Jamie, like we said earlier, right? That transformation of watching him maybe become a less bad human being. I love this imagery. George actually uses this a handful of times throughout the series. It's just like random imagery. But two of my other favorite uses come from the sworn sword. Elsewhere, the trunks of burned trees thrust like blackened spears into the sky. Mm. And then there's one that just happened in a storm of swords. Eliana knows that this is one of my favorite ones because I'm like, ah, ah. But in a storm of swords with John regarding Egret, after the word was a spear thrust, after the war, after the conquest, after the wildlings break the wall. To see the spear thrust used within the same proximity as a metaphor, like in a, a, a Cat and Rob chapter, and also in a John with his lover that he's not sure if he kills later on kind of tragic chapter. I don't know, I think they're, it's very obvious their tragedies are running very much so parallel in the opposite directions. And I love that he put this language in both of those chapters. It felt so significant. Yeah, it... That that line, especially from the John one, is it's a gut wrench, and it makes me realize that <laughs> is it the whole it, it is it is it, <laughs> just twisting the knife, twisting the spears, the blackened trees, but especially in the context of this chapter where they're thinking again of that there's a glimmer of hope, but I'm realizing as I think of this chapter, and I think of everything that comes after. I don't know that there's a there's no thought of an after for Rob. There's no thought of an after the war, after we win and get independence. Mm-hmm. There's no plan for like what what they do in peace and I think it really goes to show like how how hopeless he felt his situation was until like this moment. He never dared to think of an after the war, after the conquest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially watching Danny's plot kind of run parallel as we've talked about of yeah. her rise and her wars and what comes after. What about the kingdom after? And I do think, that's not to say, I think they're both laying bricks for that, right? Like, uh, Brynden as the warden of the marches, I think that's a big one to start to lay the fabric for of, okay, you're going to be in charge of keeping this border and these people safe so that I can Mm -hmm. focus on the north. But I guess ousting is the first thing. I mean, you said, you know, Kat's thinking about her homes. She doesn't even have a fucking home right now. She's not even allowed to go home. There's no home for her anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's not. She's not in a state of mind where she's thinking like, after the war, when Rob and Jane can settle down, yeah. maybe they'll have like in the same way that Sansa or, or even John have those fantasies of maybe I will have these children. Maybe there will be a Brandon among them. Maybe there will be also a little Rickon. Like, Cat isn't even having that. Even when she's thinking of maybe my grandkids, she's like just hoping that she'll even get her daughters back. There's no, 
after isn't like a time it's an it's a place it's a place that they never reach and perhaps we will never reach it if the winds <laughs> of winter never comes out so <laughs> uh, well are you saying we're just gonna be zombies yeah. in the riverlands yes do, forever don't you feel that do you not feel that way right now yep kind of yep at times yeah <laughs> as they go yeah. back through the whispering wood She's reminded of Ned having been alive still, albeit captured. Bran and Rickon had been safe. Theon was fighting at Rob's side, boasting how he wished to fight Jaime Lannister. Catelyn then wishes he had. She gives her own what-if scenario, and she thinks, If Theon had died in place of Lord Karstark's sons, how much ill would have been undone? Eh. I feel like undone's the wrong word, but also I'm just like, this, this feels like an unhealthy line of thought. Also just like, haven't the Starks taken enough of Balon Greyjoy's sons? Yeah. I don't really know how much ill really would have been undone. I don't think Balon was going to do anything differently. Obviously, Kat doesn't know the truth of Brandon Rickon, and Winterfell might be safe without Theon being mm-hmm. involved, but I, I don't think the overall outcome of Ironborn holding the North, blocking Moat Kaelin... I don't think that was going to mm-hmm. change in the slightest. Theon had really no impact on what Balon was about to do. I agree. I agree. If anything, it split them up more. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, Theon waffled about trying to take Winterfell longer than he should have and hold it. Mm-hmm. If anything, like maybe not to be that person, but maybe that split, maybe that was like a helpful, you know, like, yeah, it sucks mm-hmm. about Ramsey being a person. But maybe he took a lot of that brunt. I mean, it allowed mm-hmm. our boys to escape right in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rip Lewin, you were a real one. Rip a lot of others. But I mean, Theon's... <gasps> Joseph. Yes, exactly. Theon's waffling about at Winterfell actually turned out like a pro. And mm-hmm. there is something else in this line, right? If Theon had died in place of Lord Karstark's sons, how much ill would have been undone? Could you replace that? If Theon had died in place of Lord Stark's sons, how mm. much ill would have been undone? Is this George thinking of the future? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Could it be? I don't know. Hmm. Where would you get that an idea like that? Uh, hmm. From the hit HBO experience, Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, which the books A Song oh. of Ice and Fire were based upon. No, I'm just kidding. I <laughs> experienced. <laughs> Vaguely remember that. It's not TV, it's HBO. <laughs> experience. <laughs> That was an experience. Oh. We were we were together. We were all together when that happened, weren't we? Now that I think about it, when oh. when that happened, oh my yeah. god, exactly. we were all we, in the same room. Oh my god! Wow, all three yeah. of us were in the same room, crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's wild. Eliana was did in the corner behind me, like hitting me in the shoulder. It was good. <laughs> it was really good. Ah, <gasps> uh, man. Mm-hmm humans <laughs> to touch them to see them yeah Touching imagine you. imagine that well yeah so Catelyn sees signs of the carnage not not the carnage from the hbo experience that we all witnessed <laughs> together the, the carnage here in the books way in the past mm. it's decorated with stone cairns over some of the men who had fallen but scavengers had been through she stares between the rocks at a bit of face, a skull, colored fabrics, all peering at her. She wonders where Ned 
might have landed after the Silent Sisters took him north, accompanied by Hallis Mullen and an honor guard. Had he reached Winterfell to be interred with Brandon, or did Moat Kaelin shut their doors before they could pass? Hmm. You want some truth? Hal Mullen made it to Greywater Watch, and he's returned to the Riverlands, and could be with the BWB, even as we speak. Pew, pew, pew. As we speak. As we speak. He's there, because we're all the zombies oh roaming Riverlands He's been for there for years, a so long fucking he's time, there. Lady Gwyn. He's just waiting for someone to figure it out. Someone free him. Seriously. I do have a theory that it's Hal in the cave ah. in A Feast for Crows, reminding Brienne that she had once sworn her sword to Catelyn. In this same theory, Harwin has been sent north to scout the Arya Bolton story. Oh. Been replaced at Stoneheart's side by Hal Mullen. Interesting. But even if that's wrong, I mean, it's just a theory. But if it's wrong, I mean, I think people rarely just disappear in A Song of Ice and Fire, meaning, if you know, we didn't see the body. So there's a pretty good chance he's going to come back. I mean, hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. being a body doesn't <laughs> even stop people from coming back. Very true. Very so. true. And he was in charge here in the Whispering Wood of Catelyn's guard around her. He was in charge of Catelyn's personal guard. So I think that's actually a really astute connection. Like, if he's mm-hmm. back at her side, that would kind of make sense. Commanding the personal yeah, guard again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Every league takes Catelyn farther from Riverrun, and she wonders if she'll ever see it again, or if it's lost to her, like so much else. <laughs> The short answer is yes. The long answer is yes. <laughs> it's lost. She'll never it's see lost. it all again. Um, I mean, maybe she will, but it's lost to her. I hear it's a nice place to spend the winter. Hmm. To warm so. up those dead old bones. Uh, maybe. Five days later, scouts inform them <laughs> waters are rising unnaturally at Fair Market. Glover and his men try to swim mounts across the Blue Fork, but they lose two horses and one of the riders. Cat suggests they try a bridge upstream near Old Stones, but Glover says it was washed away first. Rob asks if there's another way. There's not. If they can't cross, they have to go around the Blue Fork, through Seven Streams and Hagsmire. Bogs and bad roads are none at all, Edmure comments. Cat worries Walder will take this as a further slight, their delay, and Rob promises he'll be apologizing with every breath, having already sent birds ahead of time. He hopes Bolton made it across the trident before the rain started. I don't. I, I wish he hadn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rob thinks he would have an easy mm-hmm. march straight down, and then, once Edmure joins Roslyn and the phrase join him, they can all go north. Cat asks if he'd be taking the causeway against Moat Kalin, and he smiles at her and says, That's one way to go. She knows he won't expand on this because a wise king keeps his own counsel. Also, he's not telling her anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Big teenager. Teenager vibes. I'm not telling you anything anymore, mom. Especially like he doesn't have to, but it's very much like that that meme, the meme that inspired George in a lot of this story. All right, then. Keep your secrets. <laughs> I know. I- I know Eliana. what happens in Lord of the Rings. It's just a bunch of memes. That's that's what Lord of the Rings is. <laughs> Tired, Eliana. Every week, Chloe wonders why she does this to me. Uh, so many vows. They make you record and record. 
So they reach Old Stones eight rainy days later, camping on a hill within the ruined stronghold of the once ancient River Kings. The foundation remains, but small folk had taken most of the good rock to make their own septs, holdfasts, and barns. In the center of the yard, a carved sepulcher stands in waist-high grass, the lid carved to look like the man that lay within. But rain and wind had eroded that. He wore a beard, but his face was smooth and featureless, his hands folded over a stone warhammer on his chest. The hammer would have held runes that told its name and story, but the centuries had worn the cracked stone away. Wild roses and lichens wrapped themselves around it, and this is where Catelyn finds Rob and Greywind. In the saddest place in the house. <laughs> where Can we find the oldest, saddest place and stand there? Let's do it. Uh, I know Lady Gwyn's going to go deeper into this symbolism in a little bit, but there's just something so absolutely devastating here. Cat must be thinking, will the small folk carry off the marble pieces of Winterfell to make their own seps hold fast in barns? Can life once more be born from what has been made dead? Ha ha. Ha ha. Oh, ha ha. Philosophy. Cat philosophy. Um, but that is, I mean, and that's also the basis of, you know, the Sansa Seven in A Storm of Swords, right? Rebuilding Winterfell at the start. And uh, the idea of the small folk carrying off the nice pieces of what was old stones and still being made to like use it again and that it was still able to protect them even though it was just like a shitty place that broke down after wars that that feels like important right because i think the small mm -hmm. folk are kind of important i hear mm -hmm. kind of seems sustainable i like the idea yeah. of it <laughs> yeah well and that's what like a kingdom should do right it should take mm -hmm. care of its people so it's yeah. like for this is the sad way of it. <laughs> we use all parts of the animal here. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is that, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I do also like that the sepulcher appears soon after Cat wonders what has become of Ned's bones. It feels really pointed, and it's like it's a reminder that one day there would supposedly be a statue for him in the Winterfell crypts, and. While this is a statue of a king, Ned is, as as Catelyn points out, father to kings and queens. And, you know, if, if the bones ever make it there to Winterfell, because, you know, apparently some people have designs on those. But I don't actually remember, maybe, maybe you all would remember, if they ever succeeded in making a statue of Ned in time. Because I know that Lewin says that they will have to find someone who knew Ned's likeness. But I'm like, did they have time? Like, that feels like it would take a lot of time before Theon mm -hmm. invaded and just, like, fucked everything up. And I, for one, would not be able to focus on making a statue, you know, while everything's being invaded. But I don't anyway. think they got it done. I really I don't. I don't think they did. But yeah. there's still, I mean, someone might know one day, but it is like, it, it feels like this really important piece in the chapter that's just like very focused, I feel, on legacy and what happens to our desires when we die, you know, with, with the whole will and stuff. But mm. it's also interesting that, again, it is a king portrayed in stone, besides like a, it's reminders of Winterfell Crypts, because, you know, Lady Lady Stoneheart, and uh, mm -hmm. I'll come back to, to all that later, probably. <laughs> yeah. I guess that that is kind of like the on the nose interpretation there, right? The stone. I didn't think about the that. Stone. Uh, mm. I love it. There's a lot. There's there's so much in there though of just like what the stone represents for the small folk, for Rob, for Catelyn. 
Hmm. What a what a loaded, beautiful set. And we're at Old Stones. I mean, come on, that is that's exciting. We are at Old mm-hmm. Stones. Rob asks if the castle has a name, and Catalin tells him the small folk called it Old Stones when she was a girl, but maybe it was different when the kings lived here. She remembers camping with Hoster and Peter here once. Rob recalls the song, Jenny of Old Stones, with the flowers in her hair. We're all just songs in the end, if we're lucky. She had played at being Jenny that day, had even wound flowers in her hair, and Peter had pretended to be her prince of dragonflies. Catelyn could not have been more than twelve. Peter, just a boy. Rob asks whose grave this is, and she tells him what her father once told her, Christopher, fourth of his name, king of the rivers and the hills. He ruled from trident to neck, thousands of years before Jenny and her prince, when the first men were still killing each other, long before the Andals. The Hammer of Justice fought a hundred battles and won ninety-nine the singers say, and the castle was allegedly the strongest in Westeros. Until, you know, mm. seven Andal forces joined against him and he died. We get it, George. It's foreshadowing. We fucking get it. Jesus Christ. Uh, the strongest castle. Winterfell's walls, how could it have burned? It's marble. Seven Andal forces <laughs> against him. He died. Alright. Mm. Hammer of Justice, though, that that's interesting. Christopher being kind of a symbol of justice through his hammer, much like I'm sure we'll compare later with Robert in a bit, but it stands out to me with Rob's campaign being about justice for the North and becoming that figurehead for the North. There are a few things in Christopher's story that vaguely stand out, like the veil is the first stone to fall in Christopher's wars. Roland Aaron invades the Riverlands looking to war. His allies end up betraying him to Christopher. Christopher beheads him at Old Stones, so different than what we have with Rob and the Veil there. Uh, Rob, I mean, I would say the Veil is definitely a pretty heavy stone to fall for Rob, not having that help. We see Mm -hmm. it's a significant downfall. Numbers win wars, as we learn in the chapters surrounding this and in the future. The last battle that Christopher fought was against the seven Andal kings coming together. They were led by Armistead Vance, and That is kind of what happens here for Rob, that his foes in the south come together to defeat him in the end, brick by brick, tearing him down. But there is kind of like a a small little hope at the end of the story for Christopher, which is that of Armistead Vance's conquering came House Tolly and River Run. So it almost feels like there's that little hope that like Rob falls, but the north and the Riverlands aren't lost. The guerrilla warfare that the Brotherhood will commit to it becomes key part of that. The North having their bit of quiet, dignified retaliation to the Bolton regime. The Wolves Will Come Again is, is just like written on every page, just quietly. It's there. It's waiting. Mm, yes. <laughs> Looking forward to that day. Mm-hmm. But unlike this Christopher the Fourth, the fifth Christopher was not his equal. And the kingdom was lost, then the castle, then the line. As you said, they took it apart brick by brick and then some later. House Mud had ruled a thousand years before the Andals came, and House Mud was lost. Probably because women don't want mud, allegedly, according to Barristan Selmy. So I hear. <laughs> so, so we hear. But I, I think that this is kind of a fun place in the context of the other chapters again surrounding it, because some of the way that Catelyn 
explains what's happening here, who Christopher was. Kind of reminds me a little of the slight history lesson, right, of Bran and crew coming upon Queen's Crown. And, you know, as as opposed to a king's tomb or monument, which is, again, just a few chapters before this one. So you get this similar timing here with the, with this royalty, these royal landmarks. And I think it's a little interesting in a chapter that's about finding secret causeways with the help of the Kranigmen, since the path to Queen's Crown is one of those hidden causeways itself. And we are with some Kranigmen. Mm-hmm. Love it. Nice. Yeah, I do too. I really, I'm, it's the one thing that we don't really get yet, and I just want it. I want the I bogs. I want <laughs> to just roll around in mud in a bog, and I'm so excited. I can't wait till we go there. The Howl's, howls yep. Moving Castle. Howl's the swamp, Moving Castle. The swamp Benders. I can't wait. Go in there and find a Shara Dane smoking a blunt with Howlin' Reed and Greywater Watch. <laughs> do you know how pet happy alligator. I'm Their pet alligator. You know, yes. he's out there teaching her to spear frogs, romance. It's not dead, everyone. Mm-hmm. Romance is not dead. Ah, speaking of those bodies <laughs> there, Lady Gwyn, those, those missing bodies. <clears throat> Rob runs his hand over the stone, regretting he didn't knock Jane up before he left, and says that Christopher's heir failed him. Cat reassures him it doesn't always happen on the first, nor the hundredth time. You're young. You have time. Spoiler, he does not have time. (laughs) Rob argues he's a king, and he must have an heir. If he died, the kingdom can't die with him. But Sansa and Tyrion by law get Winterfell next. He can't allow that. The dwarf must never have the north, he says. Catelyn agrees. Until Jane can give him a son, he must name an heir, and she begins to offer him cousins, a sister who married a son of Lord Raymar, Royce, in the junior branch, three daughters who married Vale Lords, a Wainwood, a Corbury, a Templeton, but Rob interrupts. His father had four sons, he declares. Cat knew this was coming. She argues, a snow is not a Stark. He is a brother of the Watch, sworn to take no wife and hold no lands. Rob says, John's more a Stark than some lordlings from the Vale who have never so much as set eyes on Winterfell. True. I mean, true. Mm, very true. Very, very true. <sighs> Do we want to digress about these Vale lordlings? Yeah, this is like a great little side piece of Vale, some Vale exposition. Uh, first of all, Raymar, you know, the uh, the name that comes from Waymar. George, what is that? <laughs> What are, what are they, Targs? Like, what, what are these, like, fake-ass... Raymar and Waymar oh Royce. Tweedledee, like, Tweedledum. <laughs> I don't know, he Waymar cracks is me like up. Waymar's an okay name. I think Raymar is, like, right there with the name Hoster for me. <laughs> you know, had Waymar not come first, you know? Yeah, I think he really fucked sure. it up on that, <laughs> etymology-wise. Oh, my God. Uh, so, keep up with me. We're going to drop some, some line here of Raymar Royce. He had a son named Benedict. It was one of his younger sons. Benedict marries Jocelyn Stark. Jocelyn would have been Eddard's grandfather's, Edwile, sister, Brandon Edwile Jocelyn. So Jocelyn and Benedict have three daughters who all marry into the Vale, as said, in Wainwood, Corbury, and Templeton. This would be the cadet branch likely that we now see Nestor Royce and Miranda in. Jocelyn herself would have been the daughter of Willem Stark and Melantha Blackwood. Willem Stark was the Stark who went beyond the wall to fight Raymond Redbeard, who we're hearing about right now during John's chapters. 
Willem is killed and beheaded, and his younger brother Ardos avenges him, slaying Redbeard. Gotta love it. Gotta love the themes. Gotta love the names. Younger siblings avenging their older siblings that die, yada yada. Uh, but also, the Vale Lordlings in question from long ago. Waynewoods, Corbrays, and Templetons. Isn't that interesting that in Sansa's chapters in the Vale, here at the end of the book and going into A Feast for Crows, we get all of those characters. We have a Templeton, we have Waynewoods, we have Corbrays. We have Lionel and Lynn Corbray, we have Simon Templeton, and later on, when Littlefinger is trying to woo Lionel and Lynn Corbray, Simon Templeton, and the Waynewood faction, he throws a little a little wedding shindig for Lionel, right? There's something going on <laughs> a little deeper there, and it makes me wonder if this is a match to his speech in A Feast for Crows, mm. right? If this speech about the Vale Lords matches up a little bit with what Littlefinger says to Sansa about the Vale Lords, Ellis and Alice Aaron and their children, and how Harry the heir is, of course, down the line, the heir. It's almost like Littlefinger is just sewing together some of these familial ties in order to fabricate claims on the entire nations. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like he knows he has other loopholes to get the North completely under his thumb, just like not Sansa. He keeps forgetting about that one. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's on to something. I mean, he like he's made it his business to study the genealogy of all these major Vale houses, right? Don't tell me he missed the connection to the one house he's completely obsessed with. Yeah. I mean, he's he's obviously aware of this and there it's not accidental that he's surrounding Sansa Stark with Waynewood's Corbrays and Templetons. And you know that there's a very fair chance that the whole point of it all, that it all boils down to Harry Harding, the only grandson of Ellis Waynewood. Yeah, looking at the actual family trees, like there's no connection, like right now, as we sit just here, just we because we don't know. know. Yeah, the links. But right. it does feel like maybe Harry has a tiny bit of wolf somewhere in him too that would like help Littlefinger. I don't know. And this is just baseless speculation because we haven't had a book in so long and anything goes. But it, it does feel yeah. like there's more there. And it's going to be a real mm -hmm. shame when he dies like right away and it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. And none of this matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that being yep. said, it also gives more credence to why those Vale Lords may or may not vote Sansa and vote north and say, well, we don't want to follow Littlefinger because he sucks, which they feel. <laughs> We're seeing that. They, they feel that in real time. Uh, but they might mm -hmm. want to go for the Stark if they've got a drop of the north yep. in them. Yeah. Cousin Sansa. Yep. Yes. Dude, indeed. Cousin mm -hmm. Sansa, whose father they loved well. Which actually, it all fits when you think about why did Ned go to the Vale? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm to be fostered because they have this cousin familial connection with houses there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That explains much and more, I'm sure. <laughs> Once we know all the details. Yes. Well, Rob says the Lannisters stripped the Kingsguard of their life vows, so that's not a problem when it comes to John. He's like, and you know what? I'll just send a hundred men to the wall and they'll find a way to to release John and Catelyn says, "Yeah, but John can't inherit." And Rob's like, "Well, I'll make a royal decree to name it. Then there's precedent for that." Hmm, isn't there? Makes me think about something that mm. Aemon said to John in the first book. 
about the three tests that the gods saw fit to give him for his vows, right? Once when he was a boy in the fullness of manhood, and once when he was old. So once when John was a boy, already as we've seen in Game of Thrones, and now he's coming into the fullness of his manhood, right? Eamon said, like well, you know, I mean, like, the Lord's kissing going on. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty full. His manhood is full. Oh, my like, God. Why they phrase it like Wait, that? I don't want to talk you about it. You said this it. This isn't my fault. Eamon said it. God damn it. Eamon, why? My ravens would bring the news from the south, words darker than their wings, the ruin of my house, the death of my kin, disgrace and desolation. What could I have done, old? blind, frail. I was helpless as a suckling babe, yet still it grieved me to sit, forgotten, as they cut down my brother's poor grandson, and his son, and even the little children. <sighs> so, you know. That's pretty devastating. Pretty devastating. And that's, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the theme tying in here, right? Rob, we're seeing the opposite of it, where John in A Game of Thrones, we had to go through these pains with him, and this, like, split loyalty and how he just wanted to go for his family. Here, Rob's thinking the opposite of it. He's thinking, I could get John. I could get John. Forgotten at the wall. Yeah. And it also provides an answer to the question that John asks in the first book. Like, how would Rob receive me if I left the wall? And I came to him, and I came to join his cause. And he wonders, would Rob, would Rob name me deserter? Or would he embrace me with open arms? And now we know. We know what Rob would have done. Well, he would have given everything for his brother there, but apparently he's not willing to give everything, I guess, for his sisters. Well, we do have that affliction, us ladies. <laughs> Being women. Being women, that is the affliction, yes. Yes, right. it's... Uh, haunted me since I sorely afflicted. could ever live. Yeah, that John's worth, I guess, a hundred men to him. Like, where do you get these fucking mm -hmm. men <laughs> to just send to the wall and be like, you're gonna do this mm -hmm. now so I can get this one man back? Damn, Catelyn had to bargain and send Jamie. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then Catelyn reminds Rob of the grief that Aegon the Fourth brought the realm when he legitimized his bastards on his deathbed. But how could you trust them or their sons? And she says that they plagued the Targaryens for five generations until Barristan the Bold slew the last of them on the Stepstones. She worries that if Rob legitimizes Jon, then he can't undo it and turn John Bastard again, and his sons by Jane would never be safe. He reminds her that John would never harm a son of his, and then she throws Theon, murdering his brothers, back in his face. Greywind leapt up atop King Christopher's crypt, his teeth bared, Rob's own face was cold. That is as cruel as it is unfair. John is no Theon. So you pray. Have you considered your sisters? What of their rights? I agree that the North must not be permitted to pass to the imp, but what of Arya? By law, she comes after Sansa, your own sister, trueborn. And dead. No one has seen or heard of Arya ever since they cut father's head off. Why do you lie to yourself? Arya's gone, the same as Bran and Rickon, and they'll kill Sansa too once the dwarf gets a child from her. Jon is the only brother that remains to me. Should I die without issue, I want him to succeed me as king in the north. I had hoped you would support my choice. I cannot. In all else, Rob, in everything, but not in this, this folly. Do not ask it. Don't have to. I'm the king. 
man, I can't believe I just fought with my mom for everyone to hear. Yeah, it was real, real crazy, a little intimate here. Whew. Sorry, was, mom. This is exciting it's okay. for me. <laughs> so sorry, uh, mom. The live studio audience. I just got slapped uh, by my child. Yeah. Well, uh, if I had that real power, mm. I would do it again. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. No, just kidding. Interesting. We're getting a little teenage angst in here. Uh, really hard. Uh, I kind of forgot about how hard she went on the Arya factor mm. here, which, interestingly enough, that's what the North does, mm. right? They use Arya's claim. Mm-hmm. So she saw mm. it before they did it. They use Arya's claim, whether she's there or not. Yeah. Rob turns and walks off. Grey Wind bounds after Rob, and Cat grows weary, knowing... Ooh, I caused even more damage today. Good for me. Making messes. Something else that really sticks out there was the John would never harm a son of mine. Because mm. it's kind of a flipped script. To me, it's such a mm. a line that we usually hear from Ned, mm. right? About Robert in his head. Yeah. Robert wouldn't harm a son of mine, dot, 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 would he? Maybe just a son of Liana's. Um, or sorry, Rhaegar's. Mm. Could be either problem. Mm. Interesting. Yes, yes. It's a big, big question, and that's like a question in sin that falls throughout the rest of the books. For the record, John wouldn't harm a child of Rob's. John would love it. He'd be such a great uncle. Oh, he would. He really would, though. All I have done is speak the truth. Are men so fragile they cannot bear to hear it? She might have wept then, had not the sky begun to do it for her. It was all she could do to walk back to her tent and sit there in silence. Holy shit, a mood. Mm. Yeah, the answer is yes. They yeah. cannot bear to hear it. Yeah. Haven't we all been this, yeah. this passage? Uh, we've all been we this have. passage. Yeah. Um. <laughs> this brings, you know, like, just go back a little bit in this same chapter with Mage Mormont saying, you know, we're stronger than, than they think. It should just be, we're stronger. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Ari's Okart would agree. <laughs> yep. The women are truly the strong ones. Yeah. In this shit, at, at least. At least Jesus. in this kind of thing. I wanted to share something with you guys. This whole very atmospheric scene at Old Stones, which is so important to a lot of different things. But a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away... <laughs> Uh, no, on a uh, website called westeros.org. A friend of mine. Galaxy far away. Yes, that seems like a galaxy far, far away these days. But I used to inhabit the RLJ threads there years ago. And I had a friend mm. called Frozen Fire, or that was the name they went by, who shared this amazing analysis of this Old Stone scene. I've never forgotten it. I want to share my sort of uh, summary of it with you. She started by reminding us that the description of the sepulcher immediately precedes the discussion about John. So obviously, we've just covered that. That's important. Uh, Old Stones is where Prince Duncan's Jenny came from, which brings this Targaryen connection into the scene, uh, specifically Targaryen succession. Also, don't forget it was Jenny's friend, the Ghost of High Heart, who prophesied that the prince that was promised would be born from Aerys and Rhaella's line, which leads us back to Rhaegar and possibly his son. So all those things should be kind of swirling in our heads now, just by the mention of this place. Kat's response to Rob's suggestion about John, 
by recalling the Black Fires, brings the Targaryens and the matter of succession right back into the discussion. And then there's the tomb. We've covered some of the crypt things. I mean, it's definitely crypts are important in Winterfell and for John specifically. But this tomb can be seen as a metaphor for hidden or forgotten identity because a lot is made of the fact that it's obscured. It's it's worn away. The sepulcher is covered with overgrowth. The runes relating Christopher's story are literally worn away. There's a crown visible on his head, but his features are undefined, so we can't recognize him. His story has been forgotten by all but a few, as we expect Jon Snow's story has been hidden, obscured, and maybe forgotten or remembered by very few or maybe only just one. And that motif of the faceless king is really a dead ringer for the king in hiding trope, which, of course, we relate to John. So, Christopher, the name specifically means one who carries sadness, which is highly tempting to connect with uh, Rhaegar, especially when you read the description of the relief on the tomb with that warhammer resting on his chest, reminiscent of Robert's warhammer crushing Rhaegar's chest. Then you've got the wild roses creeping up from the bottom of the carving, coming to rest on the king's heart, representing Lyanna, the wild rose of Winterfell. And then at the very end, there's a great scene, great moment when Cat sees Grey Wind standing on top of the tomb, his posture, his snarling wolf head, looking for all the world like a defiant Stark sigil. The Hidden King is a Stark, in spite of Cat's insistence that a snow is not a Stark. And that is it. He is. He, he is, is a Stark. Oh, God. <sighs> It's beautiful. Thank you. That was so beautiful. And he is, you know, he's a Stark to me, goddammit. I love this. He is. And I do think in that breakdown, you know, that all of those themes that are swirling around, and they will probably swirl right back to encompass John eventually too, but, you know, Rob's marrying for love, much like Duncan, mm-hmm. much like <clears throat> Rhaegar. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be real, much like Rhaegar. Mm-hmm. That's the supposed sources of drama that bring down their kingdoms and dynasties. Mm-hmm. I, I really, really like this analysis from Frozen Fire. So thank you through time um, to Frozen Fire. And it, it's such a great way of tying the location, the setting, and and the imagery back to, as you said, to John and that discussion of him. It also kind of makes me think now, I was like thinking, I was like, is we know that John is much more like Ned. Is Rob just more like Rhaegar? Are they like each other's fathers mm. more than they are? I don't know. It's a random thought that it made me think of but in general it is just a very loaded scene and setting and like you said Christopher sort of serving as a reminder of how that past with John is going to surface again in the story but besides being a reminder of the past and Rhaegar's legacy I also feel like the sepulcher is something of a caution about you know the kind of legacies and the kind of wills that rulers leave behind them because the worn away features of the king, besides also being reminiscent of John's history, also 
the features are lost, the runes are lost, and that kingdom is lost, right? Especially the memory. And it crumbled apparently very immediately after it. And it feels so much like an interpretation of the poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley, a poet from the from English Romanticism and also apparently the husband of Mary Shelley of Frankenstein fame. Hmm. And so, so the poem, it's very brief. It's, it's a sonnet of, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. So this poem itself is inspired by a story of a statue of Ozymandias, a.k.a. Ramses II, that reportedly said, King of Kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. <laughs> and Ozymandias' boasting would have been towards his obviously contemporary rival rulers, likely the Israelites and the Canaanites. Yet, as the poem points out, and as we all know, where are Ozymandias' mighty works, right? Physically, nothing is left much like this worn away visage of Christopher. And so coming back to that, and also coming back to Queen's Crown again, a few chapters ago, which I think has echoes with this chapter, I think of this idea of legacy and that, again, so little is left of Christopher's legacy and that it all fell apart immediately after. And all that we know of Christopher's legacy and memory is that it was characterized by fighting in war. He won, he fought in 100 battles and only won 99. Whereas Queen's Crown still stands. It's a tower. It's not a worn away face or visage. There's no, there's no vanity to it. And the legacy of the new gift and the way that it benefits the Night's Watch, that still has lasted long after the death of Alisan and even survives the fall of her family dynasty. And so I think this is the kind of risk that Rob is running up against as a ruler and that all of the rulers are sort of running up against. I think Balin Greyjoy's succession kerfuffle is a fantastic example of, of how this can go terribly. But Rob has just relied too much on the examples from the songs and leaned on battles, much like Christopher, as a way of trying to cement his leadership, which we see, you know, at, he, he's looking for just one last hand that he can play. He's pouring over the maps, trying to find it. And we'll see that the books do ultimately go on uh, about probably Rob's legacy. Uh, it might not be any of these ostentatious works. Yes, he does die, but he ends up becoming the inspiration for his siblings as a loving brother, as what they see a leader looks like, and kind of becomes a rallying cry for the North because he ends up kind of being martyred, which is always the risk that you run when you unjustly kill someone. But <laughs> You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> It's always a risk. No, they did kind of fuck up on that no one. No one told Walter like, Frey that. Can't expect him to know stuff because he's stupid. <sighs> so glad. I was worried that your stance had changed in just, the past couple hours. Just so you know, I'm still over here hating Walter Frey. Still anti-Walder. Good. 
good. Mulder Antis. Uh, you know, uh, all I can say, Eliana, just the whole entire time you spoke, all I could think is it's not dead, just broken, like oh, me. No. <sighs> so, you know, that's that's where we're at. And that's where we're at. <laughs> in the days that follow, Rob is the first to rise each dawn, the last to sleep, and he grows lean and hungry as his wolf. Catelyn wonders whether he's sleeping at all, and we can confirm he's not because he's busy warging. That motherfucker's <laughs> out there warging. That's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. We know. Think about what Bran was doing in Clash of mm-hmm. Kings. That's what Rob's doing here. Getting lost in the wolf. Catelyn's mood has not improved, and Mage confronts her mood one morning, asking, all right, what's going down? And Catelyn's like, in her head, well, everyone I love has been murdered, or worse, married to Tyrion, and the only ones left hate me, or expelled. Uh, But instead, she says, the rain is dampening our journey. We've suffered much, and more lies ahead. (laughs) They must face it boldly, but the banners hang limp and sodden. Daisy says she'd rather have rain than arrows raining on her, and Catelyn laughs, and she's like, you got me there. Too bad about later. Uh, asking if Bear Island women are all such warriors. Lady Mage says, were she bears? We have needed to be. In olden days, the Iron Men would come raiding in their longboats or wildlings from the frozen shore. The men would be off fishing, like as not. The wives they left behind had to defend themselves and their children or else be carried off. There's a carving on our gate. A woman in a bearskin with a child in one arm suckling at her breast. In the other hand, she holds a battle axe. She's no proper lady, that one. But I always loved her. Aww. (sighs) I love them. Yeah. There's an aspect of this scene and the descriptions of how the Mormont women came to inhabit these spaces, especially as warriors, which of course is often seen as the spear of men, that kind of reminds me of World War II, because so many men were off fighting. Women who were left back home uh, ended up continuing the work that men had left behind, which opened the path for women to eventually, you know, be in these spaces to hold jobs and earn their own income. But also, of course, the language of the child suckling and holding a battle axe reminds me a little of how Asha always describes her jerkin axe. But uh, I'll leave the rest of that to you, Chloe. I'm so excited about this. This is like one of my favorite moments. And I think we've we're robbed of these moments. Ha, huh? no pun we're intended. Robbed. We've been robbed. <laughs> God. Um I, I do feel robbed of these moments that Catelyn kinda has here with the Mormonts because uh, and I think George kind of started getting into it a little late himself. Like he was like, Ah, what if I put them together? That could be fun. <laughs> but I'm so happy to have our first close look at Daisy. This is the heir to House Mormont. We've actually only really met a couple other female heirs to houses so far, right? We haven't yet met Ariane. We have Daisy. We have Asha, technically. I'm just saying. And Mira, sorry. We also have Mira as the heir to House Reed, which is another one of our kind of our warrior woman. For someone with the weight of her house on her shoulders, Daisy carries it so well. She's spirited. She's easygoing. And she's killer with a morning star. And... As we'll see in the next two chapters, she becomes something like a member of Rob's personal guard or his uh, kind of pseudo King's guard. And, you know, in a couple weeks when we get to Last Supper terms, she's kind of his Mary Magdalene, you know, his fiercest female Mm. loyalist. Uh, This scene between Catelyn and the Mormonts is one of my favorites. I love Daisy's never-ending faith 
in her king, her innocence in that. And this scene particularly brings back what we get to hear in King's Prize between Asha and Alisane Mormont, albeit this is much more hopeful at the time. Of course, Asha and Alisane's conversation takes place after Daisy has died in service to the Starks, and the Mormonts have experienced some further loss. Sisters, Alisane Mormont replied, gruff as ever. Five, we were. All girls. Liana's back on Bear Island. Lyra and Jory are with our mother. Daisy was murdered. As Mage and Daisy explain that the Mormont women have always had to be strong in the face of violence, whether it's Iron Men raiding them or Free Folk, they have always had to defend their people, their home, their fellow she-bears while the men fish. It's fitting that Catelyn, who by chapter's end also kind of feels like a prisoner in her own son's camp, is the one to hear this story of Mormont women being warriors. The Mormonts had to fight to have autonomy in their land. Asha smiled back. Mormont women are all fighters, too. The other woman's smile faded. What we are is what you made us. On Bear Island, every child learns to fear krakens rising from the sea. The Starks themselves are about to come into having horrid men, like Ravos the Raper, or Ramsay Bolton in this case, coming to their homes, ousting their kin, their people, murdering them, mistreating them, burning their cities down. What we are is what you made us, Alisane says to Asha. That echoes for Catelyn, not just here as she becomes a hardened woman, but also later when she becomes a stone-hearted woman in her post-dead transformation. What I am is what you made me. Yes. <laughs> Rise. Well done. Well done, Chloe. Yes, thank you. Clap. Thanks. Oh my god, thanks. It's Fantastic. it's such a great like thread that he draws between later mm-hmm. with the King's Prize and this. It's like such a bittersweet version of this. It really is. It is. It's a, it's a great connection of the circumstances, right, of, of what caused all these women to become, I mean, hardened in different ways. War! Mm-hmm. It's war. <laughs> yeah. It's war. Spoiler. It's war. <laughs> well, on a, on a very different note, I guess, Mage is like, you know who we don't like? <laughs> <laughs> you know who we don't like? Jorah's wife. Jorah's ex-wife. And tells Catelyn about her, about how he won her a proper lady and attorney, and how Lynesse hated that carving, which, I mean, yeah, that's a red flag, Jorah. That was a red mm. flag. That's an awesome yeah. carving. I mean, I also am like, Lynesse writes, but also I'm like- I'm like, maybe Jorah's cool the red flag. Holy shit. No, Jorah is the red flag. <laughs> um, there's a lot of There's a lot of problems. Anyway, so she had hair spun of gold, skin like cream, but soft hands, not made for axes. And Catelyn's like, yeah, yeah, she kind of remembers her having seen her at Winterfell Feast. She's fair. She was fair and unhappy. And I mean, like, also, like, Jorah's family, I think, makes one more dunk at her where I'm like, did they just call her, like, little titties? Like, they were just saying <laughs> that she, she didn't seem, like, great for bearing children or feeding them. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> they really, like, went all in on, like, Jorah's ex-wife, huh? Um, no wonder she didn't like being there. I mean, a home isn't a home isn't just mm-hmm. like home is where no one makes fun of your titties unless you want them. To. Yes, I ex- I, exactly. God. Home is where you feel supported. These people clearly did not support her or her She's titties. Not supported. I know. <laughs> okay, not everyone can be stacked like Catelyn. Okay, and. <laughs> Because Catelyn remembers Lynesse, you know, drunk confessing to her. 
Uh, she felt that there was no place for a high tower in the north, and Catelyn tells her, you know, Atelia forever River Run once felt the same, but found much to love here. And that's because she was able to build a family, and Lyness wasn't able to because, again, she's family was mean to her, her in-laws, but of her family now, Catelyn thinks all of them are gone. Oh. Winterfell and Ned, Bran and Rickon, Sansa, Arya, all gone. Rob remains. Had there been too much of Liness Hightower in her, after all, and too little of the Starks? Would that I had known how to wield an axe. Perhaps I might have been able to protect them better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, Jingle Bell. Oh, dear. Jingle <laughs> <laughs> Bell. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, this is when George decided Jingle Bell had to die. <laughs> Jingle Bell must die. I think there's a song there, but. Oh, really? Jingle Bell. Jingle We're all songs <laughs> in the end. Songs okay. in the end. Killing the fray. Mm. Oh my god. This is really great Jorah exposition. Outside of Danny's chapters, there's not a ton of Jorah exposition, but in those Danny chapters that bookend this, not exactly before and after, but this sort of sequence in the Riverlands, things are coming to a head for Jorah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) the specter of Lanessa's rejection, really, because... We all know that's why he loves Danny so much. He and Danny quarrel over Dario in the chapter before all this is happening. And then in the very next Danny chapter, which is when she discovers Barristan's identity and Jorah's treachery. So it's good that we got to learn a little bit more about Jorah in between those two chapters. It's well placed. Secondly, in the past, I've made the case that Kat's arc is all about her assuming a stark identity. And in this line where she doubts herself. I I think this is a poignant reminder of that, that actually, no, you're wrong. Tully house words are family, duty, and honor, but in Ned's world, in the Stark world, family is everything and trumps everything. Over the course of Kat's story, we see her abandoning duty and honor in favor of family, defending Bran, arresting Tyrion, freeing Jaime, and ultimately, if I can look ahead those couple of chapters, her final crazed act of vengeance, R.I.P. Jingle Bell. This is all in the name of protecting her children, though. Everything that she does that basically has her turning away from the words of the house of her birth, because she's becoming a Stark who will do anything. You know, if you look at what Ned has done, uh, his his devotion to his family trumped duty and honor every time. So, but when Cat beats herself up for not doing more, then you know, I um, I, I view this as part of her continual struggle to be better, to leave the gentle Riverlands behind, and really truly become a woman of the North. As she thinks about this, wanting to be a Stark and wanting to be strong and hard for Rob. But at the same time, I want to give her a big hug and tell her she's really doing the best she can, you know, with what's available to her. She's doing a great job, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and and I agree, you know, I think she has very much assumed that Stark identity. If if anything, Rob hasn't done enough to cast off some of those ideas of duty and honor and in service of family. Uh, whereas Kat, as you said, has and 
I, I think, you know, if she's holding herself up to the standards of Mage and Daisy, she's kind of already accomplished some of that, right? She she has the scars, the literal scars to show it in mm-hmm. regards to the protection of her son, of, of Bran. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I'm sure she feels now that it was in vain because she thinks Bran is dead. But, you know, if if we're also talking about, like, as you were saying, like, doing the best she can to, to set her children up to grow up and protect themselves. I mean, if you look at the real numbers, <laughs> the real numbers of her children and not the Catelyn, like, what Catelyn's been told are the numbers of her children. She has, in fact, done a great mm-hmm. job. It's really just Rob that, you know, fucked it all up and died. In fact, at that moment, I mean, no, all, at that moment when she's despairing, they're all still alive. Yeah. 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 Everyone's, Everyone's alive. Cat, come on. You've done How great. many Stark kids does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. and there is something there, too, that, like, she really has to shut herself down on this trip. And the maturity that she exercises in the face of all of the hardship that she knows is to come, let alone what's happening now, like, that's so poignant that, like, Edmir would rather fuck off with his bros and be like, I want to ignore what's to come. And Catelyn, who wants nothing more than to grieve and be so just, like, self-pitying, like that's all she wishes she could do, but she sucks it up and she's like, I can't be seen doing that for Rob's campaign. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Um, and she is a figurehead. She is a voice of it. So she has that responsibility. But my God, that responsibility is a heavy one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rainy days later, they pass seven streams and head through Hagsmire. They end up abandoning half of their wains in the muck, and they transfer most of the loads between mules and horses. Lord Jason Malister catches up with them more than an hour to dark with his column, but Rob calls it for the day. Cat's escorted by Reynold Westerling to Rob's war tent, where he sits with a map, Greywind at his feet, his counsels there, Galbert Glover, Mage Mormont, Edmure, and a balding, fleshy man that she doesn't know. Jason Malister rises to offer Catalan a seat, his face. Moving yes. on. Yes! <sighs> Look, we are a very pro-Jason Malister household. Um, <laughs> we should have warned you of this, Lady Gwyn, before you hopped on, but, you know... We have a thirst, and it's for Jason Malister X-Cat, the true ship. Mm. And I have to say, the way he's introduced to this is great. Mm-hmm. His hair had almost as much white in it as brown. Okay. But the Lord of Seaguard was still a handsome man, tall and lean with a chiseled, clean-shaven face, high cheekbones and fierce blue-gray eyes. Lady Stark, it is ever a pleasure. I bring good tidings, I hope. We are in sore need of some, my lord. Sore need of what? Mm. Um, it's a pleasure. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. But Jason, I think he's a little hot for her. I don't know. Maybe she's a little hot for him. You know, maybe she deserves that. Maybe we need some grief fucking here. That would have been great. You know, get your last one in before <sighs> croak. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, fierce blue gray eyes, high cheekbones, comely as fuck. Wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Good for Jason. Yeah, in an alternate timeline, you know, Kat is living out her zaddy Malister fantasies, and I hope for that for her. Has someone written that fan fiction? That, I like, hope so. I, I, she I actually goes to Seaguard. Like, if Kat lived, you know, all these what ifs that are going around, what if Kat lived and did go to Seaguard? <sighs> uh, 
I mean, that's what she wants. That's did Catelyn fi- write that fanfic? She doesn't. She doesn't she write want that. it. But mm. yeah. damn, yeah, wow. <laughs> she deserves it. Yeah, sure, she does. I agree. I agree. I think in time, this could be a thing. I don't know. I don't know that she has any time, but Lady Gwen. She Wynn. doesn't have much. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think. What if Jason's into that? It's, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Okay, I'll take us in another direction, but Jason Malister, this will this will be a downer. I'm sorry, um, because he is kind of a reminder of two of her kind of serious miscalculations, and and I say this with all love for Catelyn, but you know she did trust Peter Baelish, and that was a mistake, and it led to her arresting Tyrion, and that was not a great thing didn't necessarily have the impact many people think it did but it was still not a good thing why does jason malister remind us of that because she sees him en route to king's landing while she's heading to the in at the crossroads Mm. and he doesn't recognize her just trots right on by but it also reminds us of when she allowed rob to send theon to pike good lord uh, she had suggested Jason Malister go instead, maybe forgetting, maybe unaware that Jason Malister killed Roderick Gregjoy. Maybe she did know. I don't know. But in any regard, she did not insist that Theon stay at Rob's side as per Ned's final instructions. I hate to be reminded of that because that's another what if. What if that had gone differently? What uh. if Jason Malister had gone to Pike? I digress. (laughs) In truth, I think this chapter illustrates the futility of Kat attempting to influence King Rob at all. And given that, uh, you know, her alternate suggestions in terms of Theon weren't really very good. uh, You know, I just wonder, you know, if Rob would have listened to anything she said. I, I don't think there was a perfect person to go to Pike anyone better you know any there yeah. i don't think there was a better choice to be honest um at least not somebody that you wanted to survive and <laughs> live to come home but you know i do like the continued intersections of these two and i highly yeah. doubt we've heard last of jason malister so yeah probably not considering you know patrick he's a patrick yeah. has gotten a lot of screen time too mm-hmm. and you know, regarding the suggestion of, of Jason Malister as an envoy, I, I kind of do think that she knew what she was saying when she suggested that it was an intentional um, suggestion signifying that she felt that Theon was the worst choice to send, because, again, gestures at what has happened in the story. But I, I kind of took the way that she delivered it him being an envoy in the same vein as Stannis responding to Janos asking who better to command the Black Cloaks than a man who commanded the Gold Sire and Stannis going like any of you I would think even the cook so I think uh, her suggesting Jason was more saying that the risk of Balin interpreting Jason as an envoy and taking that as an insult and becoming angered that was somehow even less of a risk than losing Theon as leverage and then again leading to everything that has happened. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point and like I said to be fair i don't think there really was any kind of a good option so yeah. you know balon is gonna balon and um you know he was uh-huh. gonna kill and arrest anyone nobody was gonna leave pike <laughs> as jason malister's surprise visitor can attest yeah and i will add 
Not just that, but also Balin wasn't going to treat with anyone but Theon. And spoiler alert, he wasn't going to treat with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like his goal was like, treat with he Theon. wasn't going to treat with Theon yeah. either. And obviously, <laughs> and that did him no good. He honestly, shit, you look back, Balin really could have tried not to fuck some shit up there. He, he could have gotten a, a, a hand up in the conversation, depending on, you know, if it was Faceless Man slash Euron that killed him. God. I do think there's this moment later on that we'll gloss over that I want to add that, like, Rob just looks at Jason Malister and he's like, so you have, like, a fleet, right? <laughs> and it's a total little boy moment. You can see kind of, like, his desperation seeping through his campaign as we go <laughs> along. And now Jason is a very attractive option for pretty much anything, right? Like, pretty much anything mm-hmm. they can get. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The Manderleys are too far away, but what you were saying about no one being able to treat Balon and being able to move him, that Balon was going to do whatever he wanted to do, that, that speaks to what Lady Gwyn was saying just now of how nothing that Catelyn would say would move Rob, mm-hmm. right? Like, that once these men become kings, there is nothing that you can necessarily do to change their mind once they are set on a course. I mean, there are things you can do to change their mind, but ultimately they are beholden to no one but themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm the king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, speaking of Jason Malister news, Rob explains that the captain of the Mirham was brought by Jason, a merchant out of Old Town. The captain, previously imprisoned at the islands, declares Lord Balin has died, <gasps> fallen from a storm while crossing on the bridge. Grey John dressed that he hopes... King Crabs ate upon such royal jelly when told that I guess like the crabs ate his eyes or something, <laughs> but the Mirham says, Wait, there's more. The brother is back. And they're like, Victor, and they're like, No, the other brother, the crow's eye, Euron. Euron's been to Ashai and back. Mirham had heard and marched into Pike and claimed the sea stone chair, drowning Lord Botley in a cask of seawater on his objection. The captain of the Mirham had escaped then, and here he was. This is the dad, the captain of the chick that Theon bangs mm-hmm. out in that chapter. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I kind of forgot that. Reminds me also of Wex appearing in A Dance with Dragons mm. as like bringing the information <laughs> that the the rebellion needs to move on, <laughs> right? With Davos uh, going to Skagos. And so this is interesting. This adds a whole new element to Rob's story that he almost got a chance to conquer. Interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of heirs and being heirless, as this chapter does, there are there are readers who theorize that Theon left the captain's daughter pregnant, you know, and that could be an heir to the Iron Islands mm. and Theon's line. I don't really know if that's true or not, but I mean, it's an interesting thought. Kind of makes me worry about what happened to the daughter if he had been taken prisoner originally, and if he escaped during the kind of hubbub with Euron. I don't know. Where's uh, your daughter, Captain? Hmm. Valia Jr.? Well, what if she just yeah. escaped and Where is she? Brought, he brought her back to Old Town? Who's who's in Old Town? Eek. Yeah. Maybe. Well, Euron's going there yeah, next. So. Exactly. Oh, no. God damn it. Oh, no. <laughs> Out of the frying pan into the fire, I think, is what you call that. So. Gotta break a few Actually, eggs. Actually, probably literally. It's probably gonna burn. <sighs> Rob thanks the captain of the Miraham for his news, and he asks him to wait outside. He tells the lords, Euron's no king, Theon's the rightful heir, unless he's dead. 
Victarion commands the Iron Fleet, and Rob thinks he will abandon Moat Kaelin to go back. Galbert reminds him the daughter holds Deepwood Ma and Robat's wife and child. So Rob continues and says she will need to sail home and oust Euron by pressing her claim as well. And as I read this, I realize the language and the way George has set it up. I'm so clever to see it. This is a redux of kind of what we're going to see in the North. Rob says Theon is the rightful heir unless he's dead. John's the rightful heir unless he's dead. Mm -hmm. Victorian commands the Iron Fleet. This one's less 1-1. One, one. Davos and Rickon, maybe. Rickon commanding Davos's boat. Uh, and the daughter will need to sail home to oust Euron, or Ramsay, to press her claim as well. It's basically kind of a redux for the end of A Dance with Dragons going into the Winds of Winter with kind of the appeal in the north of what's going on for secession. And also, I have to add... He keeps pushing on Theon being the rightful heir to the Iron Islands in this conversation. And it makes me think, because if he doesn't push on that, then what he says about John holds no weight. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that. And I like the comparisons that you made here and, and why. And, and that, I think, is a great tie between Theon and John, right? Because, I mean, they their stories are so important to one another and they are both so important to Rob in parallel ways. But it also speaks to Rob's belief, like Kat's, in this solidity, right? The dependability of the existing Westerosi social structure and the traditions, everything, etc. Because Theon must be the heir, because that is how we do things in Westeros, according to Rob. And, and I think that's interesting, especially in these chapters, because as we've been discussing, a lot of this chapter is talking about how things have changed in the land and amongst the people. And it's, of course, leading up to the absolute dissolving of those social structures when the Red Wedding plays out and turns out nothing that you thought of how your world, your society was supposed to go holds anymore. Mm -hmm. I like it. Rob, as you said earlier, asks Jason if he has a fleet. <laughs> sort of. It's very funny to me. Like, you can't just go around asking people... Oh my god, my dad said you might have a fleet. Do you have a fleet I could borrow? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rob. Jason says too, he's like, actually, it's half a dozen longships, two war galleys, not quite a fleet. Also, if you send me to meet the Iron Fleet, I will perish. <laughs> Guess it's a good thing they're working on that White Harbor fleet eventually, right? But not in time. That fleet needs to get popping if someone's going to defeat Euron. I'm just putting that out there. Mm. So long ways around. Yep, get it going, Manderlees. Get it going. <laughs> Rob says he would never ask him to meet the fleet in battle, but he wants him to sail around the Cape of Eagles, up the neck, and to Greywater Watch. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Greywater Watch. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Lord Jason hesitated. A dozen streams drained the wet wood, all shallow, silty, and uncharted. I would not even call them rivers. The channels are ever-drifting and changing. There are endless sandbars, deadfalls, and tangles of rotting trees. And Greywater Watch moves. How are my ships to find it? Cop River flying my banner. The Cranic men'll find you. I want two ships to double the chances of my message reaching Howland Reed. Lady Mage shall go on one, Galbert on the second. 
He turns to Mage and Gelbert, telling them they'll carry letters for his remaining lords with false commands within, in case they're taken. Kind of reminiscent of Tyrion's strategy, right? In a larger form, mm-hmm. maybe higher stakes, assuming, you know, he's already assuming they'll be betrayed, but taking necessary precautions to protect the kingdom. He tells them to lie if they're taken and say that they're going to Bear Island or Stony Shore because Moat Kalen is the key. Balin knew that, which is why he sent Victarion there. Mage doesn't think the Ironborn are foolish enough to abandon Moat Kalen, and Rob agrees, so they'll leave the best of their garrison, but he'll take many of his captains to speak for him at the King's Moot. Gelbert's in shock that he means to just attack up the narrow causeway. No one's ever taken the moat. Rob reminds him, yes, from the south, but from north and west simultaneously, <laughs> taking the moat, they can take the Iron Man in the rear while they beat off the main thrust. God fucking damn it, George. Oh my god. The Bolton and the phrase will make his armies 12,000 plus, and then he can divide them into three, staggering them half a day apart. Mm, but, in actuality, Roos has cleverly peeled away the Stark loyalists under his command. He is already accounted for in the in the numbers Rob is talking about there, but he lost a tremendous number of, of men at mm-hmm. the Green Fork, probably like a third of, of his army that had been left with him. And then he sent Robert Glover and Helm and Tallhart to Duskendale, which was a significant force that was pretty much decimated. More recently, he left Wireless Manderley and his rear guard, which is upwards of 2,000 men, behind at the Ruby Ford, where they fell to Gregor Clegane. So again, finally, he left a final group of 600 under uh, the infamous Kyle Condon to hold the north side of the crossing. So he's pretty much dialed himself down to about the same size of a a group as Rob has, about 3,500. So not quite as many as Rob expects, but mm, critically now, uh, Roos's men is army is mainly composed of uh, Boltons and Karstarks <laughs> to be reinforced by a couple thousand Freys. So, you know, in reality, the combined force that Rob would have had would have been about 9,000, more than enough to take on whatever's waiting for them, you would think. But it, it seems like Rob missed the sort of neon signs it's pointing to... The number of men Bruce brought with him and exactly who was missing. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Like in reality, yeah. that confined force is actually just 3,500 people still. And maybe Rob yeah. should have been like, well, wait, where did all the, where are the, the, the Manderleys and the, the Tallhearts and the Glovers and the Riswells and the all the people mm-hmm. that, no, they're not here? Just Boltons and Karstarks? Yeah. That's cool, Bruce. Let's carry on. And you know, it's a bummer because while Bruce is just whipping through his armies like this and tearing them apart and sending them away, Rob is also sending his most trusted people away at the same time, right? Like his best disciples. Mm -hmm. He's just like Ned in A Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the end, Mm -hmm. sending away the people closest to them, the people they can really trust. Mm -hmm. Isolation. I think that might be a literary device. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh, i guess at least the people that he sent away though they didn't yeah. die so there's that true important too <laughs> it, it feels important yeah. it feels important and the person that i guess ned sent away right amongst uh kind of helped to bring his uh dead his yeah. widow back to life <laughs> 
Well, well that planned, was good. Ned. Well planned. <laughs> good, good job, Ned. I know you saw that. I know you saw that. That man knew. That man knew. <laughs> so the goal of Rob's whole plan is to think his whole strength is rushing Moat Kalen, and then Roos will have the rear guard, you know, so he can stab Rob in the back easier. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Unless. Uh, and Gelbert will lead the van against Moat Kalen. Rob will have the center. The Great John jokes. He's like, I'll deliver you the moat before you even show your face, King. And Rob's like, I sure would love that. <laughs> Edmure doubts Rob getting north of the Iron Men, but Rob reminds him he plans to use Cranegmen's secrets to get in through bogs, wet roads, reeds. Rob will reappear with his army and the fever. If they move quickly, they'll be there within year's end after the wedding, falling on the moat while the Iron Men wake with hammers beating at their heads from the mead the night before. Which is another great parallel to Danny Four that just mm. happened in Yunkai, right? Isn't that exactly what she did in Yunkai? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great point. Great point. Thanks. Thanks. I did my homework today, everyone. Well done. A plus. Gold star. Yes. Yeah. Rob did do to some extent. Isn't mm. enough. It's a good plan. Yeah. Galbert agrees with you. Galbert likes the plan. Uh, though he is, of course, worried about the risks, and he asks. What if the Kranigman fail you? And Rob reiterates, my father knew the worth of Howland <laughs> Reed. Damn straight. And then he turns to his mother, who now he delivers the blow of, she will be babysat by Lord Malister at Seaguard after the wedding until the war is done, which is a new twist on sleeping with the babysitter. <laughs> That's a kink. It's a kink. I've heard people have. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is this my punishment for opposing him about Jon Snow? Or for being a woman, and worse, a mother. It took her a moment to realize that they were all watching her. They had known, she realized. Catelyn should not have been surprised. She had won no friends by freeing the Kingslayer. And more than once, she had heard the Great John say that women had no place on the battlefield. So, it's fascinating that Catelyn frames this as punishment for being a woman or a mother, on top of, you know, everything else that women already endure in Westeros. But I, it, it is ultimately uh, not necessarily like a punishment per se, but Rob does make a great point of not wanting both of his closest family members in the clutches of his enemies so, to be used against him. Now that, you know, that's happened to him a couple of times. And I, I do love, though, that Kat's interiority does frame it as a punishment because she sees it now as her agency being stripped from her by her own son when her own desire is to just be by him and to protect him as his mother. Mm. But ultimately, you know, she would be a risk to him, same as Jane was. Uh, But this is also echoed and reinforced by the Mormons telling Catelyn that they understand her actions and her desires. Mm Mm-hmm. It is. It's, again, it feels like unfair punishment, just like what everyone's getting right now. (sighs) Mm -hmm. Us, especially. We are the most punished of all. All are punished, I think. I think think you're right. A great man once said that. Oh, my God. Gelbert and Jason are trying to like be real gentle. Everyone is walking on eggshells around Kat because they're like, she's gonna fucking flip yeah. out. She's gonna fucking flip out. Rightfully so. Catalan does. She's like, you would make me a prisoner? And Jason's like, an honored guest. But Catalan turns to her son because she's like, this is no offense, Jason. This is between me and my fucking royal teenager. And <laughs> she would sooner return to River Run. She'll go to Seaguard, though. That is his royal command. 
And he adds, for his final trick of the night, he has named his heir. I have no son as of yet. My brothers Bran and Rickon are dead, and my sister is wed to a Lannister. I have thought long and hard about who might follow me. I command you now as my true and loyal lords to fix your seals to this document as witnesses to my decision. A king indeed, Catelyn thought, defeated. She could only hope that the trap he'd planned for Moat Kaelin worked as well as the one in which he'd just caught her. Wow. <laughs> I get it. It's a fish joke. <laughs> yes. Fish trap. I yeah. only just got that. I only just got that. Well, she's caught. Yeah. I'm going to... I might rant a little. It's not It's not going to be like the, the Wilder Frey one. <laughs> <laughs> We are very but pro-random. I, yeah. I want to say, because there's something that bothers me about this. It seems to me that, you know, it's pretty obvious what Rob's decision is. I, there's not one single shred of an indication mm-hmm. that he changed his mind following his discussion with Kat earlier in the chapter. Uh, there's, it's not, not from her, not, not anything Rob says. It's quite the opposite, in fact. He says, I've, I've thought long and hard about this, not... I talked to I thought long and hard about it and then I talked to my mom and she made me change my mind and so five <laughs> minutes ago I came up with this other idea. Now, he thought long and hard about this. John is his heir. So the real question here is where is this will? Where are all the people who know its contents and what are they going to do about it? That's the crux of the GNC, really. Every person who witnessed that document is alive with the possible exception of Sir Reynald Westerling, who may or may not have been actually called to witness the document. It's not specified that he was in the tent. He brought Kat there. Maybe he stayed, maybe he didn't. And he also may or may not have died at the Red Wedding. Giant asterisk. That's a pet theory of mine. <laughs> we can talk about another day. So you've got the great John. He's currently held at the Twins, alive. Jason Allister, still at Seaguard captive of Black Walder now, recently has surrendered in order to save his son Patrick. Black Walder being way more effective at threatening to kill people than his brother over at River Run was. So but Black Walder is currently second in line to inherit the twins, and probably in the very near future he's gonna be distracted trying to kill his brother Edwin. So he might not be sticking around Seaguard, so who knows. We've got Mage Mormont gone back into the neck. We know she's alive because she has communicated with uh, Alisande since the Red Wedding. That comes from Anasha chapter. You've got Galbert Glover also in the neck. Also likely to be alive. No reason why he wouldn't be. Edmure, alive. Catelyn, not actually a witness to the document, but knows what's in it. Also not really alive, but she exists. And she knows. Oh, she knows. So they're all out there. And then you've got the will, the will itself, which it's an interesting question. I think it's almost academic because what really matters is for those those six people, you know, mm-hmm. the, what they know, their knowledge. I mean, yes, if we had that document, that's interesting. And it's a plus, of course. So where would the will be? You know, it's not mentioned that they took it to Seaguard. It could have been, but if if Rob had kept it with him, it was in their baggage train or in Rob's possession somewhere, which seems kind of like the most likely thing for it to have happened, then it would be at the twins. 
And in that case, you know, what did they do? Did they mm. like ransack Rob's luggage after they killed him? You know, somehow did did Edmure or Great John? Well, maybe not Great John. I think he's in chains. But you know, maybe Edmure managed to somehow get his hands on it. Maybe the Freys have it. Would they care? I mean, probably not. Because as far as they're concerned, it's over. They killed Rob and his kingdom is, is uh, you know, a dead issue. But if Edmure has it, then it could actually make its way to River Run. In that case, even though I don't see any way that Lady Stoneheart could have it now, she could have it in the future. Could still kick mm. it around the Riverlands. Yeah. And I think it's a great point. Like this, as you said, this chapter is the foundations of the GNC or the the Grand Northern Conspiracy and there are parts of it you know a lot of it is really like well thought out and pieces a lot of what's going on especially in those dance chapters together so if you haven't taken a look at it I would definitely recommend people read it there are parts of it that um you know I subscribe to and parts that I don't Mm -hmm. which is true of like (laughs) many things right and and I agree that Rob hasn't changed the contents of the will I know that there are people who like I guess believe that he has but I think as you said it's pretty strongly laid out that it's still going to be John especially with the way that Catelyn feels at the end of the chapter and I mean, sometimes you don't have to, like, say things explicitly. Like, you assume that it's kind of implied in the way that George was like, why are people asking me what word, like, Brienne shouted? It it was sword. It was sword, everyone. And so I I agree that the contents of the will still name John as heir. I I feel like maybe if she doesn't deliver the will, like, I still think Mage is going to deliver the news in Mm -hmm. some form. I don't know if it's the will or not, but she's going to make it to the wall and she's, I think she's going to tell John, and I don't really, like, have any sort of interesting reason as to why she does it, other than, like, I think that there's a lot talking about, you know, her and Tormund having met before. And I, my only logic for Mage making it to the wall to deliver news of any sort is just shipping. That's it. Um, I like it. And... <laughs> I just think I just think there's a lot of language like why would they tell me all this about them like having like a one night stand if they weren't gonna you know maybe meet again and bringing up that Kat does know the contents of the will of course is an interesting question I think in terms of whether or not she would honor the decision or like she might not even make it to where it matters to the story like she might already have been like put put to rest but you know, I think what's interesting about the idea of the will and how it comes up in Catelyn's chapters and Lady Stoneheart, together these really, I think, become a question on what happens to our desires when we die, right? This idea of legacy again. Because when people die, for the most part, usually they cannot continue to do things because they are dead and physically not around and physically unable to move. And so I think, you know, what's so interesting about wills in general I think about Wills a lot because for some reason one of my friends has put me in charge of like defending hers, but thankfully she's getting married soon, so that might change. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, usually the thing about like Wills, they they have this great name, and it's about being about intention, right? Your will, what you ordain, what you desire, and it's I think our way to hope that in our deaths we can exert some sort of control over what happens afterwards. Uh, so again, something of a legacy, and all of that plays into what this chapter is about, talking about all these dead bodies and what happens after. And I think that it's really important, again, that the will comes up in Catelyn's chapter, not just because of the plot and like 
Of course, it has weight in terms of her personal conflict regarding how she feels about John. You know, the human heart in conflict with itself slash my son's heart. But, you know, Lady Stoneheart very much exists as this, you know, fascinating. She's she's a very literal embodiment of a will of how to keep exerting power over the situation after you die because Catelyn is dead, right? But Lady Stoneheart carries out that desire, the hunger for vengeance. And so I also wonder then, with Catelyn's will, you know, supposedly she's doing all of these actions, seeking it in service of her son's memory and to avenge him. Would her will maybe counter his? Though, again, she might be gone from the story by then. And my two cents is that she'll probably be dedicated to Rob's will, meaning his wishes, uh, which, like you said, eloquently, much more eloquently than me here, uh, is actually his actual will. So, you know, she has the crown already. I think there's a good chance that she's actually collecting her son's legacy, which might include, among other things, his crown, his wife, his will. You know, I think she's kind of going to collect it all at River Run and and we'll see what happens next. So, yeah, I think she'll, even though it goes against what she might have felt in life, I think that her her extreme focus on Rob, the manner of his death, hmm. and her children and all of this, their, their legacy, I think is going to lead her to be really focused on Rob's wishes, not, not so much her own personal wishes or their conflicts that they had. I mean, I, I, de- I definitely love the idea of mage being at the wall with this news whether it's a document i've heard people suggest copies you know who knows they're you know they could have had multiple mm-hmm. copies mm-hmm. of it they, they often did make multiple copies in order to you know think about stannis's letter which he sent in triplicate mm-hmm. to 500 people so basically i just see all those signatories as highly significant they're going to be spreading the word among the stark faithful they're like preachers going out on the road with their gospel whether it's an actual piece of paper or just Mm -hmm. something that they they know about well and there's something interesting right we know they have false paperwork with them (laughs) so i'm almost curious what if something of that false paperwork gets out Mm. right like what if Mm. that gets taken and gets taken as word for something instead of the will Mm. and there is also something interesting we talked about the king's prize earlier and you mentioned as well, Mage has contacted Alisane, and maybe this is an aspect of George's gardening, right? We always love to put that one out there. However, Jory, Jorel, and Lyra weren't with Mage that we know of in the beginning of the books. Mm. So that Alisane says, my sisters are with Mage, my sisters are with my mm. mother, that means that mm. they either had to join her or she joined them and got them. Mm. Uh, so one way or another mm. so she might have been home already mm. when we're thinking about where mage has been moving on the map mm-hmm. she might have already gone home mm-hmm. at some point um on the move we obviously know bear islands not really being affected affected mm. not up front close and personal right now by the boltons or anything so who knows maybe they had a quick dine and dash home to get the other kids and get out of there maybe she was there saying lana just write this Bear Island knows no king. <laughs> it's just like we practiced, Leon. Ready? Just like now we practiced sign it with your name. No, not my name. Your name. Yeah. Good. I was never here. I like that. I like uh, that. Yeah. 
I don't know. Mm. I think there's a lot there. There's a lot there with that will. And mm. who knows if she actually has the will. You know, I do think one of the major points for Stoneheart's character, I think there's such a link with Arya as we've more than overly discussed. We've beat mm. that horse to death. But I also think there is something in it that Lady Stoneheart might not want to propagate that part mm. of Rob's will. She may not be a supporter of that part of Rob's will. And as Eliana mentioned, maybe she's collecting his legacy and trying to keep it intact. Very Thetis, you know. And it also makes me think maybe that's part of Stoneheart's arc is coming to terms with John mm. being that part of the will. Mm-hmm. Find it in her heart to forgive as Ned had once prayed and hoped. Before she die dies, before nine out of nine lives. Imagine you know? if she found that in her stone heart. Oh my god. The irony. <laughs> Somewhere. The irony. Uh, my god. <sighs> Rolor. <laughs> oh. Wrong god. Wrong god. Rolor. <laughs> I only like the tree ones. Sorry. <laughs> I was raised in the seven, and let me just tell you, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. You know, you think Rolor's smoke and mirrors. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think we've done her, ladies. I think we did it. I think we exercised Catalan 5. Lady Gwyn, thank you so much for joining us for Catalan 5 in A Storm of Swords. Please tell us where we can find you out there on the internet, all the stuff you're doing. Go ahead. It's your spot. Take it. Well, thank you so much for having me. You guys know how much I love Catalan, so I'm... (laughs) <laughs> very pleased and honored. You know, I was very excited as soon as I heard you were doing cat. I I reached out. I was like, let me know, please. <laughs> Any little piece that I can uh, be a part of this. So thank you for having me. So find me and my partner, who is also uh, my, my podcasting partner and my life partner, Yoke Boy, at Radio Westeros. RadioWesteros.com is a good place to start to access all of our uh, content and lots of other links to things. Find us on YouTube and iTunes, wherever you find your fine podcasts. We have a Patreon and all that stuff can be found on our website. So um, do check it out, especially as I said, at the top of the episode, we've just concluded our uh, Winds of Winter Primer series, which has been 10 episodes recapping everything that was happening at the end of a dance with dragons in the uh, sample chapters so and you guys were part of that with us we each yes. uh, came and did one of our live streams in association with that project so thank you for that that's it check it out if you haven't i hope you enjoy it and i have really enjoyed being here with you oh well we can't wait to have you back thank you so much again for coming yeah on. thank you you're welcome yeah. Thank you very much for coming and telling us, you know, like about the Stark history and what might be the Stark (laughs) future. Love it. Well, as always, you can find us on a podcasting platform streaming near you, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Amazon Podcasts, Pandora. I'm missing one. You know the drill. Why did we switch? I used to do the listing. I don't know what's happened recently. I don't know. <laughs> You're like, but I regret it. I do. I regret it every day. I do. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you all that maybe you also might have questions, same as I do. 
And if you do, you are welcome to send them to girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, at gmail.com. Or perhaps you would like to send us a tweet or a DM on Twitter, which did not go down today. Um, you can find us at girlsgonecanon. <laughs> and if that doesn't suffice for you, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where patrons in the stranger tier and above get a very special bonus episode every single month. Last month's bonus episode was Rob Stark's POV, the ultimate Robisode, where we talked about everything and anything from Rob's point of view. And this coming month, we'll be talking about some spooky creatures in his dark materials. And of course, again, we have a Discord available to patrons in the Thunder tier and above. And we will be hosting our Discord brunch slash happy hour on October 30th, and you know, it, it, it's just gonna be like Halloween themed and stuff, you know, come get ready to is it Halloween themed? Yeah, I, I mean, it's Halloween themed, okay. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it, it's it's Halloween, alright, it's basically it's Halloween. It's basically Halloween, <laughs> so we're gonna be we're spooky, gonna be and come hang out, it's gonna be a blast. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thank you again to this episode's other other hosts. <laughs> Thank you. Other and other. <laughs> <laughs>